0: A good Tuesday morning to you on this July 27th, and thanks for joining us here on Real Talk. For those of you local, those of you that live in the same part of, uh, li- live on the, on, on the same terroir as we do here on planet Earth, just a quick reminder that that band you just heard, that's Ayla Brooke and the soundmen will be playing Downtown Edmonton tonight. And I'm looking forward to that show You're going to find him at The Taste of Edmonton That mentions on us, Ayla Brooke Thanks so much for your music The gift of the soundtrack from Real Talk 9.30 this evening Be there or be square This episode of Real Talk is presented By the team at Bitcoin Well Bitcoin's moving again You're going, what? This doesn't even make sense Why is it rising? Again? It was just falling Now it's rising? What? If you have questions You know where to find them. If you want to buy or sell Bitcoin safely, your friends are telling you you should have a Bitcoin wallet. You don't even know what that means, let alone how it works. Do it. I literally walked in there. You start with a phone call, an email, whatever. And I was like, can you guys just treat me like somebody that's starting at absolute square one and kind of spell this out for me? Because otherwise it feels a little, well, you're a little trepidatious, aren't you? Avoid trepidation. Look for Bitcoin well under the Sponsors tab on our website, ryanjesperson.com.
1: Real Talk starts right now. Here's
2: Ryan Jesperson.
0: We've got a lot going on the show this morning. In, In just a few minutes, we'll check in with the CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg. There's a rumor that Winnipeg might be the most intelligent community in the world. And so we've just pushed a tweet out from our official account at Real Talk RJ. If you're not yet following us on Twitter at Real Talk RJ, please do. We're going to start rolling out incentives and benefits, by the way, in the next couple of weeks for followers of our Twitter accounts. This is going to be very exciting. You're not you're not going to want to miss out on that. So give us a follow at Real Talk RJ. It's where we release our show lineups every single morning. And of course, uh, where we, we we release opportunities for participation and comment, there's this uh, intelligent community forum. It's a global network, uh, a think tank essentially at its core, and they've narrowed down their top seven most intelligent communities in the world. Now, our friends in Manitoba, before you start getting all uppity on the rest of us, this has nothing to do with your IQ. So I'm sure they're astounding and impressive but it has to do with how your cities are built and and how your cities plot out and achieve economic and social and cultural growth. And you might be saying, well, what are the other cities? Would it make you feel pretty good if we told you that three of the top seven, three of the final seven are Canadian communities? This is a pretty exciting one. Winnipeg, Mississauga, the township of Langley, BC. And then you've got Binduang, Smart city in Vietnam, Moscow, Curitiba, Parana in Brazil, and Townsville in Queensland, Australia. So we'll find out from Dana Spiring, the CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg, what Winnipeg's case is, what they'll be arguing when it comes to making their case to to achieve that top. Ranking the most intelligent city in the world. We're also going to be joined by New York Times recommended author Sarah Everts a little bit later on in the show. Sarah is the author of The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. And so, leading up to this, we've pushed a poll out. This is again one of our unofficial, unscientific Twitter polls. And I've got this on my Twitter right now, and and we wanted to check in on this early. Now, we're having a little fun. We took a bit of a fun angle on this. And so we're asking you when looking for a partner for the night or forever, which scent impacts you most? And we've given you four choices. Number one, a natural musk. (laughs) Number two, a simple scent, freshly showered. You know that smell. If I were to endorse a soap, I might think back to effective advertising from the 1980s and into the early 90s, Irish Spring, that type of idea, a subtle perfume or cologne or other. And we've asked you to detail below. Now, we're early in the poll. We've just pushed it out about 10 minutes ago. And after about 135 votes, it would appear that the leader here is a simple scent, freshly showered, 58% of respondents choosing that. 30%, approximately one in three, are voting for a subtle perfume or cologne. 8% are voting for a natural musk. And about 3% of you are saying other. And we'll get into some of the details below. This is a very personal question for the producer of this show, Sarah Hoyles. But do you wish to go on the record here regarding which scent might impact you most?
3: I'm going to be boring. I I go along with everybody else. I'm a lemming. Freshly Sim- showered Simple and freshly showered Just fresh
0: Freshly showered fresh. Does it Does it I mean I included the word subtle On purpose here Regarding perfume or cologne Yuck Because you can have You can have like You know that That sort of It's like an art With the amount w- With which you would apply cologne um, Too much cologne Or too much perfume Can be quite overpowering it Can be more overpowering Than a Than a, than a really strong musk I agree. However, I have uh, a, a
3: crazy, crazy, intense, amazing sense of smell. So any cologne Ooh. or any perfume gives me a headache and makes me nauseous, like physically ill. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> so there's a serious sensitivity there.
3: Yeah. So to me, I'm like, no, 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 none. Zero. <laughs> okay. The date
0: will be ending early. So someone could be meaning very well. They could be They could be going into the top shelf of their scent closet yeah and and ultimately i mean they'd be putting the nail in their coffin with you without even knowing it right right. out of the gates they'd be in trouble cut it out think of all that wasted axe body spray right that they could have just left in the can sam back in your dating days i don't want to get you in trouble here or perhaps you and your lovely partner getting set for a night on the town what might be your preference the natural musk the freshly showered scent a subtle perfume or clone or other
1: First of all, Axe body spray makes me cringe like nothing else. Axe body spray came out when I was in junior high and the boys would blast each other with it in the locker room oh, yeah. and nobody wins in that equation. No. It was just Well, it depends cuz it's
0: triggering. It depends yeah. because junior high locker rooms can also have a real That's when you start talking about the heavy musk and then you got to you got to make your choice. So <laughs> what's better? The Axe or the musk? But yeah, what would be your preference?
1: I'm I'm with Sarah, freshly showered. It's uh, you know, you kind of get you get a little subtle scent of what Whatever soap they use but it's washed and it's clean and everything's just like kind of perfectly in line there Yeah, I'm okay to, 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 well, since uh, I'll, we, I'll
0: add another vote for freshly showered since, since we've started talking. I'll note that freshly showered has dropped a percentage point and Subtle Perfumer cologne is starting to climb one percentage point at a time again. This is an unscientific unofficial Twitter poll more on our official polling from the team at Y Station a little bit later on in the broadcast. All right, let's let's talk about Winnipeg in a second. First, we wanted to remind you that this show is made possible by the support of our amazing partners, including the teams at Friesen Brothers with 16 locations across Alberta. We love hearing from real talkers that are able to take in the Friesen Brothers experience, maybe for the first time. I got this post over the weekend from Kim. How great is this? Kim says, when you've been listening to Real Talk, from calgary for eight months of course you know calgary doesn't yet have a freezing brothers kim says and you find yourself in fort saskatchewan and you need a break from your family and freezing brothers is open till 11 she says it's jesperson's fault thanks to ryan and my chatterbox friends it does live up to the hype and then kim posts this photo she's taken of of the uh of the sort of like dusk highlights that 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 amazing evening splash of color across the beautiful glass front of Friesen Brothers stunning Fort Saskatchewan store she hashtags advertising works and then includes the real talk RJ hashtag Kim we're so thrilled to hear that you had a chance to take it in the Friesen Brothers experience is like no other you can find him as mentioned 16 Alberta communities including that brand new store In South Edmonton, there's Fort Saskatchewan, which is another one of their crown jewels, Stony Plain, Hinton, and many others. You can find them online just by linking through the sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. We also wanted to give a big shout out. This is an exciting uh, opportunity for our home city of Edmonton coming up August 20th through 22nd. It is the World Triathlon Championship Finals. And there's so much going on for triathlon fans, spectators, maybe even those of you, this is your first time checking out this unbelievable sport. There are so many things that are happening, including the elite races, which is a really exciting opportunity for Alberta's capital city. You can check out the local Edmonton athletes that are participating and we'll be featuring them over the next month. And of course, there's an Olympic connection to the world championships. Learn more about the world triathlon championship finals in Edmonton at edmonton.triathlon.org. All right, the Intelligent Community Forum, a global network, as mentioned, with a think tank at its center connecting hundreds of cities and regions on five different continents uh, for collaborations, best practices on economic development, for an exchange of expertise, information that drives progress. The ICF has narrowed down its list of the most intelligent communities in the world to its top seven Winnipeg. Among them, Dana Sperring is the CEO of Edmonton Development Winnipeg, Edmi- Economic Development. Did I just say Edmonton Development? And yeah, un- you Oh, Dana. This and is a national show. This is Come a na- on. This is a national show, and I've unintentionally trolled our first guest with a Freudian slip, Dana, my sincere apologies, the CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg. It's so good to have you here on the show and a good morning to you.
2: Good morning. Good morning. I'll forgive you for that little slip up. We've got a little time for
0: you to make it up to me. Yeah, we do. That's right. Well, I'll tell you this. Uh, I got a lot of love for Winnipeg. My wife is from Winnipeg. So I'm going to hear about this when I get home. I'll tell you. Uh, hey. You know, we could have chosen, I guess, three Canadian cities to check in with. Winnipeg, Mississauga and the township of Langley. Three of the top seven finalists, which is great. Why is Winnipeg there? What's what's the major case to argue is as, as one of the most intelligent communities in the world?
2: So the ICF group um, defines an intelligent community as some as a city that's used technology they've used innovation they've upped their game but they've also brought everybody together and and they've made technology accessible to big parts of their of their population you know Winnipeg has done so much over the last ten years um, if you haven't been to Winnipeg in ten years I would tell you you haven't been to Winnipeg and and've uh, we've, we've got a lot to be proud of so They've recognized that. They've recognized a lot of the achievements that we've made, and uh, and they've named us the top seven for the fourth time in the past 10 years.
0: That's incredible. Four times in, in 10 years. I mean, you get to the point where when you're not on the list, you wonder what's going on, right, Dana? So so what what when you talk about this decade of change or this decade of evolution or growth, um, I'd love to get into – what that's looked like tangibly, but yeah. where did that start? I mean, did that start with Resolve 10 years ago and a, and a, and a, a real game plan moving forward?
2: You know what, I, I think it started by the fact that Winnipeg has a really connected business community. So it's, it's one of those kind of big, small towns. And I can bring CEOs from our biggest corporations together, you know, in the span of an afternoon, and we can talk about what's possible and we can figure out what we can use and what we can leverage and And how we make things better as a city you know we have a city council that also wants to participate in that and and they've been great partners for us and and we at economic development drive it so we want to understand where our competitive advantages are we want to understand where we fall down uh, and we want to understand how to do better so this is one of those forums where we've been able to compare ourselves against some of the best cities in the world and and we've been able to learn from them and frankly, we've stolen the best ideas, and uh, and we've ditched the bad ones. So you know, we continue to get better, and I think Winnipeg is is really reaping the benefits of that.
0: So how how would you describe Winnipeg as most different uh, in comparison to what it looked like in you know twenty eleven?
2: Well, I, I think if if you start to look at the in investments that we've made, both you know in our city in traffic centers where it's all electronic now, it's all done with artificial intelligence. You know, we have wi-fi on our city buses which is really important for kids and, and people that, that aren't you know having cell phones and, and wireless plans right it's accessible for everybody that they can use that wi-fi on buses our public libraries also have that connectivity that anybody can go in and they can use but but fast forwarding even beyond that you know we've made incredible investments in our city um, we have the canadian museum for human rights we have the Inuit art gallery that opened this year called Kama York, which makes Inuit art accessible to people around the world. A lot of that is virtual. If you can't come and see it in person, you know we have opportunities for you to see it virtually. Assiniboine Park, Diversity Gardens, You know we've got one of the best indoor gardens that is almost complete uh, in, in North America, if not the world. And all of those things are built on technology. They built on innovation. And, and they've built things that are just great things for our city. So uh, we've got a lot to show off, and, and we're pretty proud of what Winnipeg's been able to accomplish.
0: You, you just named a whole bunch of things. Um, I mean, I'm I'm really intrigued by traffic management and AI there, but I want to focus in on accessibility to tech. Um, because this is an issue uh, around equity too, right? And you talk about Wi-Fi on public transit. Are you already seeing, uh, or did you see early on, you know, a lot of people want to talk about return on investment, right? Did you see almost immediate ROI with regards to things like Wi-Fi on buses?
2: Yeah, I mean, we start to see the benefits of it very early. There was a big debate in Winnipeg, right? I I think there are some people that thought we were putting Wi-Fi on so you could watch Netflix all the way to work. That wasn't the purpose of it. The purpose is to make sure that there is connectivity among all of our citizens, whether they can afford wireless plans or cannot. So we've seen great, great um, ROI on that. You know, we've also seen the ability of people to work together and make some of these things happen. And I think, you know, that's been um, that's been really powerful and, and really impactful for our city.
0: Can, can we talk a bit about AI and traffic management? This is the type of yeah, stuff that I do that I find fascinating. So I don't know. Uh, I mean, I don't know anything about how traffic management works. So how would it have been done before? How are other cities probably still doing it? And, and what's so different or most different about what Winnipeg's doing now?
2: So we look at it in Winnipeg. We have a traffic management system that is built on traffic flows. So we know what typical traffic flows are. But we can also see, you know, if there's congestion, if there's an accident, if there's different things, AI will then help reset our lights. So you're not going to be stuck at every single light down a street. If, if there is a, a disruption, our traffic management center has the ability to change that. Also, which, which I found really fascinating, if there is an accident or if there is an ambulance or a fire truck that has to come down that road, those vehicles automatically connect with our traffic center and those lights automatically go green for them so they never have to stop and and all of the lights then adjust around that to make sure that those emergency vehicles get where they need to go as quickly and as safely as possible i mean those are those are great things that technology has given us right it, it, it's those little things that uh that help make our city better
0: now your i mean your gig is i always love talking to to folks that have positions like yours. I mean, the CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg. So you're at a at a really high level working with your team. I'm sure that you're going to deflect some of the attention and, and share the praise around, right? But you work with a team and your entire mandate is to make sure that economic development happens. So that would, I imagine, uh, you know, involve uh, retaining talent that's there, attracting talent to Winnipeg, convincing people yeah. to live and work there, raise their families there. Do things like, more efficient traffic streams do you think actually play out into achieving these mandates? I mean, do people notice these types of little things and does it impact where they choose to live and work?
2: You know, we talk a lot in Winnipeg about the quality of life that we have in our city. And underneath my umbrella at Economic Development Winnipeg, I have Tourism Winnipeg, I have a Yes Winnipeg business development team. And we all talk about how do we grow the economy? Whether we're attracting tourists, whether we're attracting meetings and conventions, whether we're attracting businesses or talents, a lot of the things that people look for are the same. So, so we talk about the fact that if you come to Winnipeg, your average commute time is 20 minutes. That matters. I mean, if you're coming from Toronto or you're coming from Vancouver or Montreal, 20 minutes is a gift, right? We're talking about cost of living. We're talking about quality of life. And if I can tell you that you can be back and forth to your job and back in 15 or 20 minutes, and you've got more time to spend outdoors, more time to spend at our attractions or at our great restaurants, you know, that matters. We're an hour to cottage country from Winnipeg, right? And if you're coming here to to build your life here with your family, that matters. And so I I think all of these things are impactful. There's no one thing that says, hey, you know, Winnipeg's got efficient traffic, so we're going to move here. But I think it all goes into that picture and it all goes into the story that we can tell about how great this city actually is.
0: Hmm. got an interesting comment here from terry who's watching from red deer alberta she says just last week we had an ambulance t-boned at an intersection actually flipped over says all cities need ai traffic control this is the type of thing that would prompt a national conversation we've got some other people talking about mosquitoes and i'm sure there'll be some pot shots about the cold And, and i'm talking to a ceo from winnipeg from our home studio in edmonton i know we can both relate i mean i appreciate to this fact that you've not yet mentioned the jets sweep of the oilers uh in the most recent NHL Stanley cup playoffs, but soon upon us, is NHL free agency. And, and there will be some swipes and some pot shots from fans of the LA Kings and the Arizona Coyotes and the Las Vegas Golden Knights and all these wonderful climates. And and they'll say, nobody wants to go to the Oilers. Nobody wants to go to the Jets because it's going to be minus 35 in the winter. It could be frigid cold. How much of an uphill climb is it with regards to some of the perceptions that people from elsewhere on the planet might have about cities that experience the realities of a Northern climate?
2: Yeah. I would tell you that the discussion is changing, but when I came to economic development, Winnipeg about five years ago, there's one rule in my office. We don't talk about potholes. We don't talk about mosquitoes and we don't talk about the cold because that's not what this city is about, right? We, we, do we have winter? Sure, we have winter. We have two weeks that are probably really cold every single year, but you know what? We have the ability to ski. We have the ability to skate down our rivers in the longest trail in the country. You know, we have the ability to, to, snowshoe and and do a bunch of things outdoors and you can't do that in LA and it's pretty lousy in Vegas too. So, you know, there's great things that we've got to start celebrating and there's things that we've got to talk about. And, you know, I'll take anybody from those uh, from those communities and, and we can compare
0: NHL teams anytime they want. Well, I'll tell you, I, I think that there's something really magic. I mean, we've, we're raising a little guy right now and I'm talking to him about the magic of experiencing four seasons. I personally think that there's something absolutely beautiful about a cold front so long as it doesn't last for six months. I, I think it's absolutely yeah. wonderful. How has this translated into, I mean, some of your strategy w- with regards to startups and the entrepreneurial culture and, and so much? We know that small business drives so much across Canada. Have you seen a strategy or, or with regards to what you've implemented that's been particularly effective in establishing Winnipeg as a place where, where startups can, can can thrive really and continue to grow?
2: We, we have incredible talent in Winnipeg. So, you know, our first job has been leveraging that talent and making sure that companies, you know, whether they're small startups or, or bigger companies, understand what talent exists in Winnipeg. And, and I think that success breeds success. So as we start to see companies that have made it work here, I think of the Skip the Dishes. I think of Ubisoft, the gaming company. You know, I think of even some of our big um, telecommunications companies like Bell. You know, there's been great strives that have been made in Winnipeg. And, and I think when you see that and you start to see what's possible, you know, our young entrepreneurs and our young people who want to start up companies have have examples to look out for and have you know, an education system that can help them get to that next level. We, we've seen a lot of growth in the past decade on, on startups, on our tech community, but we've brought in some big companies that have really been the pillars of that growth and, and really are a, a bit of an incubator for talent and, and kind of have created an ecosystem. You know, Bold Commerce, you, you talk about what the pandemic has done and, and Bold Commerce does all the kind of backend uh, work for Shopify and other online uh, shopping platforms. You know, Ubisoft makes gaming. We've played a lot of video games during a pandemic, and so they've been really successful. You know, Skip the Dishes is a food delivery service started in Winnipeg, based in Winnipeg. And and again, you know, they've had some great times throughout this pandemic. So we've got to look at all those things. We've got to figure out how to leverage them. And when we show people that success, when we show people what's possible in Winnipeg, it's amazing what grows out of that.
0: Yeah. So do you see I mean, when when you're talking about the success that can happen here, I mean, we've we've oftentimes had, you know, sort of the conversations around, you know, let me put it this way. I have a T-shirt that says still in Edmonton, and I love how it can mean a couple of different things. Right. Um, In broadcasting in particular, it was always like, so when are you going to move to Toronto? When are you going to move to Vancouver? When are you going to move to the States? I mean, I'm taking a look at this top seven here of the most intelligent communities in the world. These seven finalists. I don't see Toronto on the list. I don't see Vancouver on the list. I don't see Montreal on the list. I see Winnipeg. I see Langley. I see Mississauga. What does that say to you and what does that say to young talent? You know,
2: I think it says sometimes you got to be nimble. Sometimes small can be big, but you got to do that with creativity, you've got to do that with drive and grit. And, and if you come together and you bring those communities together, it is amazing what's possible. You know, I, I, I go back to the fact that we have this really connected business community. If I have a company that is looking at Winnipeg and, and they want to come in and see what it's all about, I can pick up the phone and I can call our CEOs, I can call, you know, very high level officials in our government, and I can get them around a table in an afternoon. That doesn't happen in Toronto. That doesn't happen in Montreal. And I promise you, it doesn't happen in Vancouver. Those types of of bringing people together, that connectivity, that innovation that happens when you can kind of brainstorm with each other, that's what's going to make your city great. And I I think, you know, we really have, uh, we really leverage that and, and we're really proud of what Winnipeg has done.
0: Dana, how much of this requires uh, collaboration, cooperation, support from other levels of government? I mean, are there are there constant conversations with with, you know, Premier Pallister and, and Manitoba's provincial government, the federal government, the Trudeau liberals? Or or is this I mean, is the majority of this really municipally grown?
2: You know what? I, I think economic development is a team sport. And so we are always in constant contact with with all levels of government. You know, when we're talking about this intelligent Communities Forum the city has really been a driver they've really been uh, a cheerleader for this this is this is really important for our mayor and and what he wants to leave as his legacy so they've been really impactful on that you know my staff talks to the provincial government every day on you know how we get companies here how we remove barriers to growth how do we make sure that there are the right policies in place to allow companies to be successful how do we bring talent here what does immigration look like all those things so it's very much a collaborative effort but um but this is something that uh, that really economic development is driven and and the citys played a big role in.
0: When you talked about, uh, I mean, you talked about stealing some ideas, and, and, and I mean, I really do oftentimes adhere to that, that mantra that genius steals. You talked about leaving some bad ideas behind or forgetting about some of the bad ideas. Did you take a look, I mean, introspectively at, at some of the, you know, ways that Winnipeg was off operating or maybe some of the strategies that had been employed and identify a couple that really weren't working? Did, did you have to toss out a couple strategies that had been in place for a while?
2: Yeah, Absolutely. You know, when I came to economic development, we talked about Winnipeg's strength as this very diversified economy, right? We never boomed. We never bust. It was fairly it was fairly consistent. We had this growth rate. You know what? I think that's garbage. I think there are things that we are really good at. There are things that we have a competitive advantage in. And that doesn't mean we're going to have this boom and bust economy. I mean, we don't have the same reliance on natural resources or on oil that, that Alberta has. But, but we do have areas where we are poised to do great things. And my staff now has to go look at those areas and say, how do we focus our energy here? We don't have unlimited resources. We don't have, you know, hundreds of people to come and do this work. So where do we think we can win? Where are we best positioned to win? And let's put our resources there. That's the mantra that my team uses.
0: I'm always interested to I mean and and I love talking to CEOs and business leaders because it, it, you know the, the mind operates a little bit differently obviously when you're steering a team and that includes where you're locating your corporate headquarters and there seems to be this this belief in Alberta at least among some political leaders that the Alberta advantage so to speak has everything to do with corporate tax rate and so as long as Alberta can have the corp the lowest and I love that you're already shaking your head because there's that same cynicism among the population in Alberta too. I don't think that that's the only, as a matter of fact, I know that that's not the only factor that corporations care about. What do you think actually matters to corporations when they're making choices like where they'll operate?
2: Yeah. So, so corporations will always look at the cost of doing business and that's fair, but I think the corporate tax rate is a very small piece of that. You know, they want access to talent. They want to make sure that they have the people and can hire the people that they need to grow their business. So when you look at what access to talent looks like, what is your post-secondary network look like? What kinds of people are you training? How do you get them, you know, to a point that they are ready to go to work for the businesses that you're trying to attract? I think it also goes back to quality of life. I mean, what, what are your employees going to look at? What do they want to have? We have a relatively small city, but we have professional sports teams. We have a great ballet, we have a symphony, we have theater. I mean we are the cultural cradle of Canada, and all of those things matter and so I think it's it's a much broader um, it's a much broader conversation and if, if it was only tax rate, you know Alberta would be going gangbusters, and I know that that's not the case right now.
0: Well, we've had some corporations actually pack up and leave uh, despite yeah. the fact that they've seen some of those incentives is that is that Is that an actual phrase that Winnipeg I haven't heard that before the cultural cradle of Canada yeah. I, That's been
2: something that, that Winnipeg has been called for quite a while. And you go look at our history, right? We have one of the oldest ballets in the country. We've got a symphony. We've got opera. We've got theater. You know, and then we have the Canadian Museum for Human Rights. We have the Winnipeg Art Gallery and the new Inuit Art Center. Yeah. All of those things help contribute to that fabric that is Winnipeg. And, uh, and it's, it's, it's very, very culturally rich.
0: I was. Uh, it was a couple summers ago. We were out in Winnipeg for a family wedding, and and you're gonna have to remind me. I'm embarrassed. I can't remember off the top of my head, but it's this stunning hotel, like a heritage hotel. It looks almost like a castle. It's right by the forks. You know the one I'm yeah, talking. Yeah,
2: exactly. the Fort Gary Hotel. Exactly. Oh my yeah.
0: gosh, what an experience! And then to walk through the forks, and and our little guys. Just, I mean, he at the time he's like three, so there was not a lot of comprehension there. I couldn't exactly get into who Louis Riel was and what it was all about, <laughs> but just being able to walk those grounds and walk through the gates and experience it. I mean, it's just, there's something there where you, I don't know how to describe it, except to say that it's palpable, the experience, you can feel it. And and I'm not sure that you can manufacture that with with infrastructure, but you can certainly capitalize on it. And I think Winnipeg's done a great job with that.
2: Yeah, thank you. I I think that's exactly right. I think that we we have to leverage our strengths. We've got to understand what makes us who we are and then we've got to showcase them. You know, that Forks area is so incredible in the summertime when you can go and, you know, have a beer on a patio and, and take bikes and, and ride around and do different things. But in the winter, that is the meeting place for Winnipeggers. We have the longest skating rink in the country on our rivers. You know, we've got skating trails that, that weave around that park. We've got great restaurants. We've got, sometimes we have restaurants that are right on the frozen river. You know, that's where Winnipeggers go. We have the symphony that goes and plays ice instruments. You know, those are part of the the things that make us unique, and also the part of the thing that you know encourages people to come and check out Winnipeg.
0: I'm uh, I'm starting to realize it's been too long since we've been out to Winnipeg. <laughs> That's what I'm thinking right now. I think we need to get our <laughs> we need to get our butts out there, uh, Dana. It's been so good. I love it. I can just feel your enthusiasm. So let's put it this way: it, uh, it's it's big for four out of the last 10 years, Winnipeg to be nominated as one of the seven most intelligent communities on planet Earth. What would a win mean? I mean, aside from your team, you guys can pop a couple bottles and high fives and it's great. You could take out an ad in the paper, or whatever you do to, to celebrate it. But what would that actually mean to be number one?
2: You know what? I think that we'll just continue our momentum to make sure that everyone recognizes the work that we've done. You know, we have a high school in Winnipeg called Stisler High School. It's one of the biggest public high schools in the province. There's a few thousand people there. They have some of the best technology courses. They do animation. They do gaming. They do cybersecurity at this high school. And graduates from this high school are able to go all over the world and they are sought after. And I think, you know, it just continues to build on that momentum. We knew that these were important products. We knew they were important classes that we could offer and the more that we get that success, the more we understand that. The more our community will continue to do it. And so, you know, I feel pretty good about where we're at this year, and, and I, I think that we've made a lot of great strides. And you know, it's it's maybe it's our turn to win this thing full hey, on. So there we'll you see go. how it goes. There
0: you go. Well, people can check out more online at uh, intelligentcommunity.org again they've, they've narrowed down their list to the to the top seven most intelligent communities in the world really neat stuff you can read about it and the ICF and and what they do I wanted to read you a couple comments before we go one of them comes in the form of a question on our live chat on YouTube James says I grew up in Winnipeg I moved away because I had better opportunities elsewhere that's no longer the case James says I've applied to jobs in Winnipeg and I would happily move back so there's one of several I'm sure and Tony has a question for you we'll close with this uh let me ask you dana tony says is is winnipeg successful do you think because government is changing with the times and 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 does dana think that maybe that could be replicated in other cities would you say that that's an important or key factor
2: yeah i mean our our government is is adapting and, and they're being pushed and sometimes they're being dragged along to do the right thing yeah i would tell you that the secret to our success is our business community And their ability to work together, their ability to to challenge each other and raise each other up and to celebrate successes. I don't see that in a lot of other cities. And I think um, I think our business community is leading and and oftentimes they're leading government. But uh, but our government has known enough to kind of follow suit and, and come on board and and they recognize good ideas. So I give them a lot of credit for that.
0: I think that was a well-answered question. Dana Spiring is CEO of Economic Development Winnipeg. It's been a real pleasure to connect with you. This is the first time we've spoken. I appreciate your time.
2: Yeah, great to chat with you this morning. Thanks for having me.
0: You bet, Dana. Thanks very much. Interesting stuff. I love that. Uh, I'm a big fan of how she answered that, uh, obviously, diplomatically, as you would as CEO of that organization. But but the question about, you know, is Winnipeg successful because government's been able to change with the times? You won't find a lot of business representatives, business owners, entrepreneurs, uh, business advocates or advocates for small business or whatever uh, that will celebrate or t- I mean, unless they're looking for grants or unless they're standing up on a stage or behind a podium with a premier or a prime minister or a mayor or what have you, you're not gonna find a lot of of, of business people saying our success was made possible because of government. My wiring and feel free to take shots or support me if you like. I'd love to hear your comments either live on the chat, either via our hashtag RealtalkRJ, or of course via an email later on. And we can read those in subsequent days and subsequent shows. Talk at com. In my mind, business happens when government gets out of the way. Now, that's not to say that regulation doesn't matter. That's not to say like issues like tax structures or incentives or, or I mean, sometimes you got to dangle a carrot. Government can play a, a big role in attracting businesses sometimes or working to retain it. But many times I think the sign of an effective government is knowing when to get out of the way. And I think that that was telling when Dana said, you know, sometimes government's got to be pushed or dragged to do the right thing. I mean, when's the last time really that you can look back and, and I'd, lo- I'd love to hear an example. I and mean, if someone can think of one, when's the last time that you can, you can point to a, a business success story and say this was made possible because of government? I mean, unless you're talking about some sort of huge subsidy, in which case I wouldn't describe it as a really successful business. Although, what are the metrics uh, by how you define success? That's another important question. You can let me know what you think about this pushed and dragged to do the right thing. I think that was a great point. Again, you can learn more about the world's seven most intelligent communities in Vietnam, Russia, Brazil, Australia, three of them in Canada at intelligentcommunity.org. The teams at Saint Albert and Sherwood Dodge? No, they're 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 not they're not trying to hide it. They know for a fact that selection well, it's a tall order right now when it comes to inventory, most especially on trucks. Everybody's been out there trying to find something to pull their trailer, their boat, to get outside, but inventory's low across the country. As a matter of fact, North America right now, a lot of people are trading in their year old trucks for as much or even more than they paid for them. Well, St. Albert and Sherwood Dodge, dealing in both new and certified pre-owned, has better selection than anywhere else, in part because they share their inventories. You can check them out both online under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. Don't forget as well, they feature the 2021 Jeep lineup, including that Grand Cherokee L. That's the first... Edition of the Grand Cherokee with that third row of seating. An absolutely magnificent family vehicle. Again, Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge under the Sponsors tab at RyanJesperson.com. The team at Park Power wants to remind you if you use the promo code 2021-real talk at parkpower.ca to sign up to bring your internet, electricity, or natural gas order over to them, they're going to give you $70 off your first bill. This is a local business serving clients across the province of Alberta. They've been in business coming up on 10 years now, and they've built up quite a fold. I mean, it's really remarkable to see what they've done, the impact they've made in their communities. I want to talk about businesses making an impact. 10% of their electricity profits, their proceeds, go back to nonprofits in the community, and their customers choose where they go. You'll see what I mean when you sign up at parkpower.ca. Well, of course, we're expecting an announcement. Uh, I would say any day day now but it's probably more accurate to say any week now we don't know when it's going to happen but a federal election is looming it's obvious candidates are starting to take out leases offices are starting to go up and soon enough we're going to see lawn signs everywhere combine that with municipal elections slated for this october already across the province of alberta and the season is upon us So when it comes to politicking, when it comes to the art of getting your name out there, campaigning, door knocking, what's most effective? Who can ignore the proliferation of election lawn signs? Are they more, though, than just visual pollution? Do they actually work? Uh, Donald Green, a professor at Columbia University, has literally written the book on this He's the author of Get Out the Vote, How to Increase Voter Turnout, previously a professor at Yale University, where he directed the Institution for Social and Policy Studies. Again, now, as mentioned, Dr. Green, a political science professor at the renowned Columbia University. We're thrilled to have you here, Doc, and thanks for making time for us. Welcome to Real Talk.
4: Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be
0: here. Is it fair for me to to, to allude to visual pollution? I know a lot of people go, oh, geez, it's election lawn sign season. Here we go.
4: Well, you know, I think that that the candidates who are involved, you know, place great faith in those signs. And so I think they'd be a little bit offended, but they probably would view their opponents lawn signs as pollution.
0: Yeah, very well said. So what 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 turned you on to this in the first place? What, what was it about election lawn signs that that captured your attention?
4: Well, my colleagues and I have for more than 20 years now, conducted randomized experiments to evaluate the effectiveness of a variety of campaign tactics. So door knocking, direct mail, phone calls, TV ads, and lawn signs were just, you know, one of a long list. So what would be attractive about lawn signs? Well, you know, in some ways they are, you know, one of the very few things that is affordable for a relatively cash strapped candidate. So a local candidate running for local office might not have hundreds of thousands of dollars to spend, might not even have tens of thousands of dollars, but might be able to afford lawn signs. And with enough uh, people power from friends and relatives, might be able to plant lawn signs in what we would call precincts, I guess you would call them ridings, um, in order to, uh, to try to win over votes. And so the question is, does that do anything for them? So
0: how do I mean, I guess ultimately the, the determining factor, I mean, when it comes down to it is whether or not you win the election, that's how you can tell what was most effective. But what are some of the other metrics that you might employ in, in determining the effectiveness of this?
4: Well, what we did was the equivalent of a pharmaceutical trial. You know, we randomly assigned uh, lawn signs to some, again, of what we would call precincts. You would call ridings, um, and not others. And so, we did this in a congressional district. We did this in a state uh, state house uh, race. We did this in a in a county race, and in a gubernatorial race. And in each case, we got uh, the candidates to put their signs up in uh, certain locations, but not others. And the question was, you know, when you looked at the precinct level vote outcomes, did they get more votes in the places where we randomly planted 40 yard signs? And the answer was yeah, a little bit, you know, it's about one point seven percentage points. So if you're trailing by 10, it's not going to be enough to win. If you're trailing by one, maybe.
0: Yeah, maybe. But even then, not not decisive. Right. I mean, really, it sounds to me like almost almost a negligible difference.
4: Yeah, I think that, you know, certainly if you were hoping that the lawn signs would overcome a big deficit, it's probably too much to to ask. But if you were in a competitive area or if you were running against other relatively unknown candidates and you just needed a bit of a boost, um, you needed a bit of credibility, you know, maybe lawn signs would do it. I think that lawn signs, you know, have enough oomph so that they might attract, for example, free media coverage because you're now considered a bit of bit more credible as a candidate. So they're not nothing, but you know, I certainly don't want to say that they're going to work miracles because they're not.
0: One of the things uh, I would say, and I'm experiencing this. I was telling a story on the show just a couple of days ago, walking the dog, and and I saw a particular house with a particular sign for a particular candidate, and I went, really. Huh? you and him really it's 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 a personal endorsement which is of course within the parameters of a community quite powerful sometimes
4: absolutely you know i think that that again i'm not i'm not going to exaggerate the effectiveness of that kind of tactic. But to the extent that a person who is relatively well known in the community for certain political views, um, hoists a sign that is a little bit out of step with what you'd expect, I think people, you know, in the community would would say, wait a minute, I just learned something.
0: Do you think that most people are adverse to putting out lawn signs because of I mean, you know, that, you know, that old premise, I'm not sure it sticks anymore. But people, you know, you don't talk about religion, sex or politics around the dinner table. Are are most people, do you think, adverse to putting out a lawn sign and publicly displaying who they're going to support?
4: Yes, I I think uh, well below half of uh, all households would be willing to do it even under, you know, under conditions where they're strongly encouraged. Um, Nevertheless, there are many political people out there. And, you know, for example, the residual uh, Trump 2020 signs are still on my block uh, here. So people are quite ardent about their uh, political preferences in some cases. And, you know, especially in in high salience elections.
0: You mean people still have their Trump lawn signs out? Yeah,
4: I wish I could show you the uh, photograph. It's uh, it's it's actually on my dog walk every day. Wow. I feel like there's a lot of layers to
0: that. There's a lot of layers to that, aren't there? So, so you, I mean, you've written the book, Get Out the Vote, How to Increase Voter Turnout. You didn't just write about lawn signs. I know that, you know, people will lament low voter turnout i mean we celebrate if if we see 60 percent. we pretend like that's fantastic we get really excited that six out of ten people have exercised their right to vote i feel like every time there's an election i'll get emails from people saying voting should be mandatory and they look at other jurisdictions around the world where that is the case what do you believe is the best way to increase voter turnout
4: well, you know, one one of the best ways, you know, is is to have an election that people really care about. So the 2020 uh, presidential election uh, was a high water mark in my lifetime, or even my mother or grandmother's lifetime. Um, it was it was a kind of record shattering uh, uh, event in many ways. Um, and our most Canadian state, which I guess would be Minnesota, voted at a rate of 80%, which is downright Danish um, by American standards. So, so it's not impossible to have High voter turnout. And in American history, you certainly throughout the 19th century had very high rates of turnout. But I think that as you um, basically wear down the American public with many, many, many elections, uh, they become inured to the idea of not voting, skipping elections. And so, in some sense, although the book argues that voting is habit forming skipping a lot of elections essentially is habit breaking and so part of the issue here is to get people who think of themselves as voters you know they're registered to vote they're they're interested enough to register and they have voted in the past to want to vote in the upcoming election and so to the extent that americans are slackers it's that they tend to vote at very low rates in municipal elections and midterm elections. And there you have people who think of themselves as voters in presidential elections, not voting at all. Hmm. And so part of the part of the idea of the book is to make a personal connection to a, someone you know or someone you're meeting and say, you know, this, this election is really important and people like us have to stand up and be counted. Um, and that kind of personal invitation really goes a long way.
0: What are your thoughts on mandatory voting?
4: You know, it's certainly something that is um, part of the, the kind of culture in some places, you know, uh, or at least it became part of the culture in places like Australia. And you could understand how the parties, for example, in Australia would want to take voter turnoff off turn out off the table as a uh, political um, as a is basically a political tactic um, but there are other places including the United States where you know turnout is uh, viewed viewed with great suspicion uh, by both parties. Um, neither party trusts the other party to uh, do anything that would either raise or lower voter turnout. And so uh, to the extent that it's embroiled in that kind of uh, partisan struggle, you know, I don't see the, a time when the United States will ever have compulsory turnout. Yeah. Now, that said, you know, um, is it a good system or a bad system? Yeah, it's really kind of, kind of hard to tell. And I think that the, the good thing about it is that um, it certainly uh allows people from every walk of life to make their voice heard the bad thing about it is that you know basically people who don't particularly care to express an opinion are are fined if they don't so so that's the that's the trade-off
0: yeah i've never really to be honest had like a strong feeling on this I, i i guess i've heard interesting points from you know different angles of that argument people talk about how a census is for all intents and purposes mandatory. People talk about how paying taxes is mandatory and how voting should be too. And then and, and but you alluded to this, Doctor, and I, I, I do kind of feel the same way that, you know, part of an election and part of someone's right to vote is their right to abstain. Uh or or if they want to show up, their right to spoil their ballot. I, I, I sometimes fear what may be the result of you know, sending four to 10 people to the polls, uh, something that they, they're not particularly interested in, that they're not up to speed on, that they're not educated about and, and what the result might be. I mean, this is, seems to me to be a bit of an academic exercise more than anything, but but it's it's one of those issues where, to be honest, I don't know if somebody asked me the question I just asked you, how do I feel about mandatory voting? I don't think I could give a decent answer.
4: It's a, it is a very tricky question because you're absolutely right. Um, and there are some states, for example, in the United States um, that have in their constitution, the provision that allows for mandatory voting if the state were to enact it. But, you know, it was just kind of a historical accident that we have mandatory uh, jury duty or mandatory uh, you know military duty, but we don't have uh, mandatory voting. And I think that those kinds of um, things tend to have a lot of staying power, and so part of the part of the reason to have mandatory voting, even if you're only encouraging people to, you know, basically turn in a blank ballot, is that they don't sort of cede uh, democratic governance to somebody else. They think of it as something that they're themselves responsible for. The downside, as you alluded to, is the concern that um, part of the part of the sort of Achilles heel of democracy is what happens when you have a kind of demagogue who is attractive to voters with a very weak connection to uh, democratic anything. And uh, those, the, the the fact that those people are kind of floating voters um, is potentially uh, a, a kind of wild card in in a political system. And there are many instances, including you know, for example, the election of Jesse, Jesse Ventura, um, where a candidate comes out of the blue and is very attractive to people who ordinarily would not vote.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Uh, that'll be the case when Oprah runs for president, right? That's a that's an inevitability, isn't it? The U.S. at some point.
4: It's you know, it's so hard to predict. Uh, who is going to catch fire? Because there are so many instances where uh, moneyed people or celebrities run and just fall flat.
0: Yeah, no kidding. I wonder if maybe inadvertently you named your next book about five minutes ago with with the slip of the tongue and voter turnoff. I think I think that that would, that would that'd be an incredible name for a book. Voter turnoff. Yeah,
4: that would be a good. Name. But
0: you know there are a lot of people that have lost faith or lost interest or in the process i mean in in all there's so much cynicism around politics right now that so many people are just turned off they don't want any part of it i hear people say it all the time whether whether or not they don't think that their daily life i mean i I don't i take issue with it uh sometimes i don't voice it but you know my life doesn't change day to day depending on who's in leadership or i couldn't even name who the mayor is or the premier i don't even know who my representative is frankly i don't even care is that something that needs to start? I mean, can you instill that that give a rip uh, in young people? I mean, does that need to start in the schools? Is there a way to turn that tide? I mean, is that just part of the reality?
4: Well, what's kind of funny is that prior to 2016, this is a constant refrain among people like me who teach, you know, politics classes. You know, students would wonder, you know, what What the hell difference it makes, whether we elect Tweedledee or Tweedledum. And then Donald Trump's election sort of changed all that. And uh, I think that um, from that point on, uh, you know, those who previously took the view that who cares, uh, it doesn't make any difference uh, now took the view that, yikes, um, better pay more attention.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Um, So when it comes to the lawn signs in particular, you did a bit of a dive into what made for successful signage right i mean when it comes we'll see some you know you there's always the ones you figure people that have the prime properties they get the big four by six foot signs on their lawn right as opposed to the little placard ones we'll see the the color schemes uh, we were noting as a team how it's somewhat interesting that that color schemes in canada and the u.s differ Typically, blue up here is tried, tested, and true conservative. Where it's the opposite, of course, down in the U.S. It's the number that the Democrats, or rather, the color the Democrats use. Uh, size, color, shape, graphic design—does this stuff factor into which signs are effective and which ones aren't?
4: You know, I wish I wish I had some hard data on that, but I would say the following, which is um, one of the funny things about lawn signs of the sort that, of the size that you just uh depicted um, is how vacuous they are right they they almost say nothing other than the candidate's name and maybe what they're running for but there's really almost no content to them and so one of the questions is you know um would you be better off if you had a slogan or or something about you that that was was you know at least vaguely memorable some kind of stance. And, I, and I don't think that that's really been tested. Although, in one of our experiments, um, there was a message, there was a, you know, it was basically a, a kind of anti incumbent message. And, um, you know, that seemed to work. And um, I, I wouldn't say that's the only thing that would work. But it's kind of an interesting commentary on, um, on maybe the margin for innovation in the world of science to actually put uh, content in them.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's isn't it funny? that the, I mean, I guess I understand it in the sense that when you take a look at billboards, um, you know, electoral or otherwise, that are effective, typically they're not ones with a ton of text and a ton of information. They're ones that kind of get to the point and they're punchy. But really when you're walking around looking at election signs, especially right now, you know, in our neck of the woods, there are municipal elections coming up. People are going to be voting for for city councilors and school board trustees and, and things like that. Um, there's there's no party affiliation on a lot of those. Um, there may be implied affiliation, but there's virtually no information on the candidates platform. It still requires a proactivity.
4: That's right. It'd be quite interesting if, for example, um, a candidate were to say, you know, something about their experience or something about their their long term, you know, they, they were born and raised in the community or whatever it is that they want to say in, in three words or less. Um, it's just kind of an interesting commentary that they almost are never advised to do that. And, you know, thinking back to your dog walking example, if somebody's hoisting a sign in their own yard and somebody is walking by it, not driving by it, there's no reason you couldn't have a little bit of content.
0: Yeah, no kidding. Do you think that much has changed uh, since when you wrote the book? I mean, 2015, there's there's a whole lot that's changed in politics, uh, both in the United States and around the world, quite frankly. Uh, Do you think that campaign tactics or the art of electioneering or whatever, however you'd want to put it, has has it changed drastically in the six years?
4: Well, you know, the first edition of that book was way back in 2004, when dinosaurs roamed the earth. And the last edition was 2019. And I would say that the one thing that has changed the most is that telephones at least in the united states have really changed as a as a you know vehicle for communicating you know it it is the laws have changed in the united states making it illegal to auto dial uh, cell phones. Um, and just in general, people are not all that receptive to having their cell phones called by strangers. Um, so that that tactic has largely been replaced by various forms of text messaging. And, you know, what's kind of interesting about that is things change, but then things don't change. You know, yes, te- text messaging was a relatively unknown thing back in 2004, but um, the, the impersonal features of text messaging are also what largely prevent them from having much of an effect. And interestingly, the, the more effective forms of text messaging are friend-to-friend messages, which seem to be quite effective. And so in that sense, it's basically an, a, a, an instantiation of one of the main themes of the book, which is the more personal, the more effective.
0: When it uh, comes to conversation around voter suppression, um, and, and I'm not sure how much the average citizen would be able to talk about this, but it certainly is uh, a very real trend and a very real issue. A lot of eyes on the state of Georgia, as if I need to tell you, over the past year in their, their voting bill, which was described by a lot of columnists that I saw as an assault on democracy. Do you think that there's enough of a public awareness, let alone a public conversation about voter suppression?
4: Well, I would say that to the extent that there is a conversation about um, ballot security or other kinds of things, um, the public tends to be supportive of crackdowns and requirements uh, that, you know, the voter identification sort. I don't know that they have any particular views about whether you can give people water while they're waiting in line um, or how long the early voting period should be. But I I would say that... um, you know, certainly the the public, though supportive of voter security, is hostile to the idea of voter intimidation and so dirty tricks of the form. You know, tell, telling people to vote on a on a day other than the election. You know, that that's widely uh, regarded as you know underhanded. I, I I think that what's kind of interesting about the American the kind of way the American you know, political divide has has come down on this, is that, you know, both parties are probably wrong about the extent to which um, these kinds of changes in the law are going to affect voter turnout. Um, just in general, uh, you know, the cue and cry that that Uh, went up when voter identification requirements were made more and more and more stringent, um, that this is going to reduce voter turnout. Well, I don't think that there's any evidence for that actually in retrospect. Um, It might've been a, a concern ex ante, but I think ex post, no, it's not really a concern, and and in this particular case, I would say that the the relevant laws in places like Georgia that are that are concerning are not really the ones having to do with how people vote or the specifics of the early voting period or vote by mail. Um, it, they, they really have to do more with the, the the role of state officials um riding herd over localities and also who gets to to declare a victory uh, in the state those are in some sense um, unnoticed almost constitutional changes um, in the way in which uh, states operate
0: I'm uh, I'm seeing some some chatter with uh, members of our live audience right now around the concept of strategic voting. And I'm curious to know where you land on this. I know that a lot of people it's 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 editorializing for me to say people overthink their vote because who's to determine that and what would what would define an overthink. But I know a lot of people think, well, I, I might typically vote for this candidate or this party, but it looks like this candidate and this party's surging. And I think actually way over here. You know, a party that might be unlikely for me to support could be the best party to dethrone this one. And so they're going to vote for the party they don't typically vote for to avoid a vote split or, you know, exactly what I'm talking about here. Do you have thoughts on so-called strategic voting? Do you think it's a dangerous road to hoe?
4: Well, it is one of those cases where, um, well, first of all, I would say Americans are largely innocent of strategic voting because we, we don't tend have, to have choices, two, right? two choices. Two choices. <laughs> yeah. But in primaries, in primaries, you sometimes see it. Um, but you but surprisingly, you don't see it very much. Right. You don't you don't typically see. Um, uh people abandoning their first choice for a more viable second choice or third choice i mean sometimes it happens but but by and large it happens because people are largely indifferent um, and part of what's going on is a third or a fourth choice is surging in the media, getting a lot of attention, not not attracting strategic votes so much as just notice um, uh, for candidates who would otherwise go unnoticed. So I would say that in the American context, you know, we're pretty bad at, at studying this, but I would say that to the extent that people do it, um, it tends to be people kind of at the, at the top of the food chain in terms of how interested they are in politics. So they're watching the polls and they're thinking, I don't want to waste my vote. Um, I think the ordinary voter really uh, votes sincerely.
0: Do you think a two party system is is better than the I don't know if it's fair for me to call it a mishmash, but I'm up here, depending on the election and depending on what level of government you're talking about, you might have seven or, or nine options on a ballot. And a lot of these might be progressives or conservatives or 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 left leaners that will all of a sudden have three options based on slight nuance to policy, as opposed to Republicans and Democrats. You're one or the other. Do you have a system that you think actually serves the public better?
4: Well, you know, I think the problem is that it sort of all depends on what you want. Um, If what you want ultimately is gridlock, um, the, the two-party system we have is wonderful. You know, we have a, a federal system with lots and lots of points of vetoes for all kinds of intense minorities. And so if you never want to see, um, you know, uh, gun rights or gun control legislation or any, any, any particular thing on, um, on this, that, or the other topic, uh, America is really the place for you. So if you want to see you know, bureaucratic incrementalism, as a, as a form of politics, two-party system was wonderful. Um, if on the other hand, you're hoping that, you know, when a, when a new, uh, uh, election happens and a new party is swept into office, that they get down to business and actually start changing things. Um, you know, our system is not that great, uh, because it's not a unitary system in the first place, but it's also not ultimately a programmatic system in a, in the same way. So it's just a, it's just a different kind of kettle of fish. I think that that the good thing about a multi-party system is that you can kind of evolve with coalitions in a somewhat more orderly way. Um, whereas our coalitions are somewhat disorderly and which ones end up becoming, you know, it's not as though we have portfolios that we allocate across a parliamentary regime. We just kind of let the president start choosing people. And so the the I, I think that the things that pe- people probably like about a multi-party system are probably askew from other aspects of government, like how how much does federalism play a role, and how much do, do checks and balances play a role? So again, as I say, it's all sort of dependent on on where you stand. If you're if you're a small if you're part of a small minority group and you want to have a legislator who is going to you know basically be your spokesperson, even in a small minority, well then a multi party system is for you. Um, because that person would be kind of overwhelmed in a, in a two-party system. But you know, if on the other hand, you wanna be part of a big tent, you know, maybe a two-party system is a little bit better, but when you lose, um, you know, you're, you're gonna say, oh, I'm just so close to, to uh, getting a victory that all I need is just a little bit more attraction to people who really don't share my views at all. And that's the, that's the problem. But yeah. of course, that's a problem even in multi-party systems as in the case of Israel.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. We, we've seen from time to time flare up around discussions about, about lowering the voting age. Uh, most recently, I mean, I did some interviews a while back, people talking about how they believe that if you can drive a car, if you're old enough to be behind the, the wheel of a vehicle, if you're 16 years old, you should be able to vote in a federal election. Do you have thoughts on that, on the appropriate age and, and what might go into that decision?
4: Well, you know, I don't think there's any any kind of clear um standard right because on the one hand uh we think well 16 year old is a citizen and why shouldn't a citizen have uh, a say um uh, you could say well they need to be an adult but it's not clear what it is about adulthood per se um that allow that should be relevant to your franchise is that you're better informed i mean maybe you're better informed maybe you're not um, when you're older so it's a it's kind of an ambiguous uh slippery slope anyway um But I would say that one of the things that, you know, might be attractive to those who are interested in having young people vote is the idea that they could form voting habits early. Because uh, if you said, you know, who are the lowest voting um, segments of society, uh, typically they're young people. Um, They tend to vote at very low rates, in part because voting is a kind of habit-forming thing, and they're not going to form a kind of consistent voting habit, typically, until their late late 20s. Um, And then they will be relatively consistent voters after that, uh, maybe even culminating in their late 70s, late 80s. Um, So getting them on that path to habit formation might be a good thing, but the problem with that is, you know, are you putting them on the, ha- on the habit of voting path or the habit of not voting path? Um, because very few 16-year-olds, even when enfranchised, actually do vote.
0: Yeah, and that probably has a lot to do with, I mean, with discussion within the home too, right? I mean, if, you've, if you're if you being raised by a parent that is, is absolutely cynical about this and that's not made it a priority to vote and it's not a really big thing, then who knows? I mean, obviously sometimes kids can break the mold. I think other times, you know, you see parents that, you know, bring their kids in with them. It's a big deal on voting day or the advance polls. And, and and it's almost like a family thing where we go and we do this. We exercise our right. I mean, people keep I don't want to use I just I don't want to use the word dramatic. But I mean, people can feel very strongly about, you know, people died for our, you know, for us to have the right to vote. I mean, this is our responsibility. And, and obviously, I think that that instills values in a young person as well.
4: Well, those kinds of values would doubtless be instilled at any age. And uh, part of the concern, I guess, with having young people vote, uh, say at 16, is that it even further accentuates what in the United States would be a a socioeconomic skew. Um, People who uh, hear about politics around the dinner table are not exclusively um, upper socioeconomic status, but they are disproportionately so. And so part of the concern is that um, if you basically have 16-year-olds vote, they will be you know, typically 16-year-olds from well-heeled uh, political families. Yeah. So all of this
0: conversation leads us to this. Could have been my first question to you, but I'll make it the last. Do you display a lawn sign leading up to an election, doctor?
4: You know, um, the, the boss, the decision-maker in my family displays a lawn sign, ah. and uh, she's very pleased to do that every election. Um I'm uh, I I try to be on the science team and so um you know I, I uh, do experiments with both sides of the aisle and so I I applaud at whatever is decided but I don't actually uh, uh engage in political activity directly.
0: You maintain your objectivity. Indeed. There you go. Dr. Donald Green is a political science professor at Columbia University, author of Get Out the Vote: How to Increase Voter Turnout. You can find that anywhere you find great books uh professor it's been wonderful to speak with you today and thanks for making time for us thanks for having me you bet interesting stuff there's there's a lot to break down there election signs age voter suppression two parties or more hoyles do you put up election signs on your lawn no is there a reason behind it can i ask is it personal
3: uh In the line of work that I am in, uh, I feel that objectivity, I mean, people can make assumptions about what my political leanings are, but I don't, uh, I, yeah, I do not align myself publicly because I feel like it could, I mean, there have even been job opportunities in my past where they were politically aligned and I'm just not comfortable. I'm not willing to put my name under the certain column because I think that, you know, long term, it would be detrimental.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, the, I'm no the sign. same way. I mean, I, I think maybe as a talk host a little bit different. Well, it's definitely a bit different than than, you know, as a, as a sort of a, you know, a black and white journalist. Right. Where you, you would say somebody covering an election, for example, uh, reporting on an election should obviously not have lawn signs, uh, should obviously not be discussing who they would vote or let alone endorsing anybody. Um, now, maybe a little bit different, but I feel quite the same way. Um, obviously, I vote. Or I shouldn't even say obviously I vote because who knows? I mean, there's a lot of people. I remember the last election. I you know, got this sticker and it's like I voted and you like wear it and post a photo. And I don't know, it's somewhat of a self congratulatory exercise. But in, a, in an effort to communicate to people that that's part of your values and that you believe that it's important to vote and you hope that everybody votes. Uh, although sometimes I hope that some people don't vote uh, when you recognize <laughs> how little some people care and how little some people are invested in the process and, and and how little research or reading people have done or digging. And then you get a little bit concerned. You know, I've, I've joked that, you know, the problem with democracy is that everybody gets a vote. Uh, but seriously, I, you know, I will talk to friends that, you know, we're like, what's up with the sticker? Oh, the election oh, is, the- the election's today. is it today. And you go, man. Come on. Yeah. But not everybody
3: shares that conviction. And I have to admit, actually, now I need to like recant and say that I have put up a political poster or put up a lawn sign and I had to make it myself. Uh, and it just said vote. Cause ah. to me, I don't care. I do not care who you vote for. I do not care. Yeah. But it's, <laughs> it's been drilled into me that it is my duty. It's my civic duty to vote. Yeah. Get your butt there. I don't care what time, Sarah Hoyles, get there. I love
0: the passion. I can feel it through the plexiglass.
3: Well, it's about community and you, you have to you have to be invested and you have to contribute. Yeah. This is my job.
0: You saw that about I mean, with regards to the most recent American election and all the all the celebrities coming out and they're like, you know, it's like Biden v. Trump. And they're going, We don't care who you vote for. <laughs> just vote but it's like all the hollywood celebrities we don't care who you vote for but please vote vote for Biden uh, and if you do vote, vote for Biden that's right i'm curious to know where real talkers will land on this michelle says you know there's voters who don't care about democracy still being invited by the demigod referencing the comment from dr green there still being invited to municipal elections by way of baloney referendum questions fair point that's a fair point for sure
3: speaking of baloney uh referendums we have a guest coming up on tuesday august 3rd talking about the daylight savings time referendum Ooh, yeah a prof out of the ufc so talk about that that's uh that's on the dock.
0: is the uh can can you give us a hint uh is is the premise or the jumping off point of the interview that that question is baloney or is not baloney because i think for a lot of people a change to daylight savings time is is actually something that they would quite care about and uh you talk you know i've talked to some agricultural producers for example that'll say like the milking cows get all thrown out of whack when daylight savings time happens i don't know if that's a real thing or not Some people get it are are really sluggish or they'll say that it affects their I just like using the word their
3: circadian rhythm. And that is precisely what we'll be talking about and and how it actually affects people day to day pros and cons choices um, to help educate the public before the referendum. And I guess that to that point, the idea that, you know, voting Uh, is important because it actually informs, you know, what happens in your day-to-day life. And I truly believe that municipal elections are the most important because that's the stuff that happens in your day-to-day life, in your community, in your city. It's vital. um, And you can have the most impact, really. And you can actually engage with that person because they are in your community. They live there and they serve there. So, wow, I'm...
0: I like it. I like it. Don't don't (laughs) dial it back one bit, my friend. I love it. Uh, I I, and I think you could also make the argument that and and I do agree with you. I mean, I think municipal politicians, uh, you know, city councilors, aldermen, whatever it is in your in your region, uh, you know, they're the ones that. They're the ones that when they're filling up their cars with gas or when they're locking up their bikes at the bike racks, when they're they're (laughs) at the grocery store or walking their dog or they're at the soccer field or they're at the local patio or whatever, they're the ones whose constituents are coming up to them. All the time. They're the ones that are having to answer questions about garbage pickup and Mm. snow plowing and community programs and rec centers getting built and all of, you know, transit expansion and everything else that, like you said, is everyday kind of stuff. And whereas, you know, provincial and and federal politicians, number one, might not spend a lot of time in their riding. Number two, might not be as accessible to the public all the time. And number three, really, I mean, especially with federal politics, you know, your member of parliament, for example, here in Canada, how much is your member of parliament actually really representing you and your riding in the House of Commons? Mm. The answer would be almost never. Right. When you take a look at at how a party might whip votes, for example, uh, whether it would acknowledge that it is or not, um, is your member of parliament on a bill around conversion therapy or on a uh, what, like whatever, as a matter of fact, on a bill about anything? How many times is your member of parliament saying, um, what do the people of uh, Lac Saint Anne want? or what do the people of Thunder Bay want or what do the people in in Gander want or what does the party leader say what what does the whip say like what's our party's position on this and i'd be curious to know how people determine whether or not they feel like they're well represented at a provincial or a federal level versus when you're talking municipal politics you better believe people are keeping an eye on which way their city councilor votes on something right like, like hell, we believe that like hell, our community votes that way. And, and I think that there is that more that that more direct accountability. I also think that on the flip side, when it comes to municipal politics, I think that the onus is more on the electorate to do more research because it's a little easier to be lazy and vote at other levels. You know, you're either for or against, you know, the conservatives or for or against the liberals or for or against the NDP. Right. You either buy into I was going to say the Green Party, but what a hot garbage fire that is right now. Can you believe what happened? I hate to even put it this way because it makes it sound like we caused it. But almost almost literally right after enemy Paul joined us on the show for what I thought was an incredible interview. We talked to her for what, like 45 minutes or something like that about all kinds of stuff about how it was a new opportunity for the Green Party and how she, you know, she's planning on growing her base and how she was going to win an election uh, it, right in the heart of Toronto. Uh, and, and then all of a sudden, her membership's under review. The party's looking to push her out. I mean, that's unbelievable there. But I digress. I'm going down a rabbit hole.
3: We've got an ask in for her to bring her back. To bring her back. Um, they're, They said they'll do their best at yeah. this point. So... Uh-huh.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> I suspect the answer will be no, but you know what? if and when she's gone, that's maybe when she'll talk. We'll see. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to get a peek behind the curtain on what's going there would be fascinating. But my point is, it's a little bit easier to play team sports at the higher levels of government, at provincial and federal politics, because you can either, you know, I mean, a lot of people will vote for the color code, right? My dad always voted blue or my mom always voted orange. So that's the way I vote. Whereas when it comes to voting for a city councillor, it requires, I mean, unless you're going to be, influenced by something like lawn signs well i get along with you know mrs jones over there and you know mr strachan over there and they've got their signs up and they both are voting for the same person and you know I, I, that sounds like a good choice to me the headshot on the lawn sign doesn't i mean they, they look trustworthy i they don't appear to be particularly offensive i'm going to vote for them uh you know yeah but man they're they're voting to close down the school and you're right they're voting to you know they're voting against certain initiatives like school lunch programs or something that might be good for your kids it requires a little bit of digging and i i uh i guess i just hope maybe that shows like this that this podcast will you know inspire people to to talk to their friends and to ask simple questions like i mean it can be a little bit sensitive who are you voting for oh yeah maybe a question like have you put some thought into it or have you done some digging or have you done any research leading up to this election i hope that people have those conversations cuz i mean elections really do matter
3: they do did your folks share with you who they were voting for
0: we had massive lawn signs we had we had the corner property with the big big lawn signs there was no there was no doubt there was no there was no question yeah but my parents are also very private people yeah you know like i can't remember um, there, there wasn't like a ton of talk about politics, but I grew up in such a fascinating—I mean, an interesting—you know—South Calgary in the 1980s and 90s was—it was almost a given. It felt like. Mm. My but I never do things stuff like stuff like, like salary or earnings or things like that. Those were all those were never discussed.
3: Yeah, that my folks never shared what, what they made um at work, but I never knew what they have I still to this day don't know what they vote. Yeah. Um they're like, it's none of your beeswax. You know your beeswax? How about you mind it?
0: Yeah. But that's been and, and to a certain degree that's true, and I totally respect that. Mm. Um, you know, you'll notice like in an interview, if I if I ever I mean, it's a very sensitive question, but sometimes it's relevant where you'll be talking to somebody and it matters who they voted for. It's, you know, do you mind me asking, you know, who'd you vote for last election? And would you vote for that party again? I mean, that's oftentimes a very telling question and it's a relevant question, but it's also a very sensitive question. And I would never blame somebody for saying, I'm not going to divulge that information. Right. I think there's a lot of people that, probably go to the polls and and they walk in being like, "Yeah, yeah, that candidate." And then they get in there like, "Yeah, right. Are you kidding me?" And there's no way they're voting for that candidate, but they just don't want to deal with it. They don't want to deal with the blowback. They're not going to put out an election sign for the person they're actually going to vote for because they know that some yahoo down the street's going to egg their house in the middle of the night and they're just not going to deal with it. Right?
3: Did you hear about the
0: lawn signs
3: that got burnt in Nova Scotia? No. Yeah, it's the only black candidate. And within hours of the lawn signs going up, one was burnt, one is missing, and Mm. one was defaced.
0: Mm. (sighs) I don't even know what to say. Stuff like that. I'm just like... (sighs) Silver Screen Wanderer on the live chat says, Ryan, whenever I try to talk politics with my friends, it always turns into awkward silence. None of them want to engage in those conversations. How do I change that? It's frustrating. I get it. I totally get it. First of all, I love that there's an appetite to change it. You know what I think it might be? I think I think what matters most with elections when it comes to voter turnout and when it comes to inspiring people, it's finding an issue that matters. And that's a lot of times what candidates will do, too. I saw somebody noted earlier Doug Ford's buck a beer slogan, which became something that I mean, Sam, you just reacted to that one. I mean, that was one, you know, for a lot of people. I bet you i mean, I'm not, not going to say a majority of people. I bet you one to five percent of voters turned out just based on bucket beer. Well, Doug Ford is a masterful
1: campaigner for exactly that reason. I mean, you know, you kind of you can't discount Doug Ford's sort of inherent folksiness and in how he knows yeah. how to leverage that. So, I mean, you know, say what you will about Doug Ford, bucket beer was a spectacular campaign
0: point. Yeah, it yeah. was, but it's also it also makes him vulnerable, right? Because when you have those slogans that 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 really attach themselves to the public, once your government starts to falter or once you start to fail as a leader, then it'll be used against you. Right. Oh, did a lousy job during whatever. But hey, buck a beer. And then I think that the pithiness of the initiative is exposed. Right. Penny here says I used to secretly vote ABC which I think Penny probably means anybody but conservative. I think that's probably what that means. She says, I had to because my ex, in other words, she did it secretly because my ex would have pitched a fit all over me. That's what I'm talking about. I think that some people may portray or at least allow themselves to be understood a certain way. Then when they go into the ballot box, boom, they actually they actually vote the way that they want to. As they should. Troy said, when I first moved down to Calgary, I didn't know anything about municipal candidates. So I just drove through. (laughs) This is a big swipe at the beautiful neighborhood of Mount Royal. Troy says, I used to just drive through Mount Royal to look at the lawn signs to know who not to vote for. Hey, (laughs) lawn signs can be effective in more ways than one. Right, Troy? Haas says, talking politics with friends is mostly a waste of energy. I'm either preaching to the choir or I'm trying to change somebody that will never change. Rarely is there an in between, and I think that that's a fair point too from Haas. Do you believe? I mean, do people actually change their minds on anything? I've I've been I've been watching some developments on on Twitter and people arguing about certain things. I'm going, like, when's the last time? As a matter of fact, I know when the last time is. I've seen it. it's been in our chatterbox and it's been on the Real Talk RJ hashtag because there's something strangely wonderful about this real talk community where people show up in fellowship every single day with open minds Mm. and people i think are willing to consider other viewpoints we've had some guests on the show that have been unpopular to some people people have heard them out considered the points they've made sometimes i'm sure it's made an impact on people's perspectives and sometimes it's solidified people's resolve which is great as well but outside of the conversations on this show i literally cannot think of the last time in particular on social media, that I saw people taking swipes at one another or exchanging ideas with one another and someone has said, you know what? You just changed my mind. I don't know about on social media per se,
3: but I, I mean, look at residential schools and how there was you know, a lack of understanding, a lack, a lack of awareness of what they truly were. Um, and now the sentiment is shifting it can change, but hmm. I don't think it's—I don't think it's the short game. I think it's the long game.
0: Yeah. How about this from Jerry, who says, "My mom just votes for whoever my dad tells her to." Uh. Oh, that Jer- breaks my heart. Jerry, I hope that I pronounced that correctly. Uh. Tried to really roll it. You know what I mean? You can let us know what you. Think about this and what you've just heard. I, I know that there was a lot to unpack with what the good Dr. Donald Green brought to us. I thought it was a fascinating conversation and a great get, by the way, former Yale professor now at Columbia. I'm all over that interview. That was good stuff. And again, you can find his book, Get Out the Vote, How to Increase Voter Turnout, written by an American. Sure. But some of the policies would certainly or some of the ideas would hold true there. We wanted to remind you that coming up on Friday, we will be featuring a little something we call trash talk. It's an opportunity for you to get something off your chest and we're encouraging more and more. And yeah, I'm spelling it out. Fewer political trash talks. It's totally okay. But every week we choose from, I don't know, on a slow week, 75 and on a big week, 500 emails. People just furious about politics. And that's totally fine. I'd love to see you blow off some steam about takeout that shows up cold or sushi delivered to your door without soy sauce or somebody selling you a mountain bike without letting you know that the gears are all messed up and the tires leak or people that don't pick up the poop at the dog park gum under picnic tables margaritas that melt too quickly people who leave their
3: sound on their phones going while they're typing in public
0: ah oh my god that is like people who call when you text them yes maybe we should just riff on trash talk do you have one off the top of your head, Sam. I mean, this is a cathartic exercise here. Is there anything you'd like to get off your chest right now? Oh boy. Uh, Look at like just Don't refill ice cube trays. I loved that oh, one from like a couple weeks ago. Yes. Honestly, that like that one still sits with me. I felt like there was a, there was kind of like a family thing going on with that submission, that trash talk submission. What was I, the email correctly was something like I because I know that my partner will be watching this. And then yeah. I think then was like, "Don't use my real name," <laughs> something
3: like <laughs> along those lines. I like that we're getting involved in domestics. That's we are, great. yeah.
0: I mean, like, not like domestics, no, but, but domestics. Yeah, yeah. Hey, we're happy to be of service when we can. The whole point of all of this was to remind you that Trash Talk is presented by the team at Local Waste. They love talking trash. They've been doing it for a quarter century. If you check out their website right now, localwaste.ca, you can see uh, the contact information there for their headquarters in Edmonton and Regina as well. It's a company that continues to grow. So, yeah, they'd love to do business with you if you need waste services. But also, if there's an entrepreneur out there, you see a void, you see an opportunity in your community... To get Local Waste out there, Chris, Mikel, Lauren, they'd love to talk to you. You can find them online at localwaste.ca. We also wanted to remind you that this team is powered, this studio, by Westworld Computers. As a matter of fact, I was talking to Daryl just yesterday. We've got needs as we continue to grow as a team, and they're helping us meet those needs and they can do the exact same for you whether it's your household or your business for more than 40 years they've been earning the return business of their customers because of what they offer as an independent family-owned business you can check out the new imac lineup right now at westworld.ca they'll ship across canada and of course that's also where you can book your service appointments westworld computers at westworld.ca Before we get to our next interview, we should probably check in on this morning's unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll. Now, now this is this is not necessarily directly, I think, what author Sarah Everts was looking to get into with her New York Times recommended book, The Joy of Sweat. However, we we could not resist the opportunity to ask you when looking for a partner for the night or forever, which scent impacts you most? We gave you the opportunity to select natural musk, simple, freshly showered, subtle perfume or cologne or other by a long shot, simple, freshly showered is the majority win to this point with 22 hours left in the poll. We can revisit this tomorrow morning. Fifty five percent of you go in there. Thirty five percent prefer a subtle perfume or cologne Just under 7% are fans of the natural musk, which is an earned scent, and 3% are voting for other. Jessica says scent is so important. Carly, who can blame Carly for voting for the subtle scent of a 3 a.m. sampler from Denny's lingering on the lips and fingertips? wonder if she might be is, is that maybe the moons over my hammy or maybe another famed dish from the longtime provider of late night eats. Now, we do have a vote from Will Wilcon for Sex Panther. Of course, one of the great products available via the movie Anchorman. 60% of the time, it works all the time. Jen says, I love my hubby's sweat smell. So that'd be a vote for natural musk. Natural musk, she says, for her all the way.
3: That is, at, like, bang on. I Like, I, when I'm first dating somebody, yeah, I want the, the fresh scent. But then once you, like, get to know somebody and you're like... Yeah. Then the musk. So, like... I guess I mean I guess I'm in the depends. Well,
0: and it probably category. depends on how the musk has been earned, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if the if if it's the musk of someone that's been on the couch for three days crushing Doritos, playing World of Warcraft, that might not be the musk you're looking for. However, if it's the musk of someone who's just roto tilled your garden who's just planted a few trees in your name that will one day bear the swings for your young child to perch upon. That type of a musk might be irresistible.
3: This is not the musk you're looking for.
0: What a lead-in for Sarah Averts who I'm, is going to have, I don't know what's going to go on here. She's an award-winning science journalist. We're leading into this with a non-scientific poll to talk to a science journalist based out of Ottawa. She teaches science journalism. How cool is that? At Carleton University, she's got a brand new book, The Joy of Sweat, The Strange Science of Perspiration. The New York Times put it on their must-read list for the summer of 2021. It's out right now. You can find it anywhere you get good books. Sarah, welcome to the show, and thanks for being here this morning.
5: It's my pleasure. I want to know, what the other category is. Uh, That's what I need to know. Like all the people who picked other, what,
0: like what kind of other, um, well, Carly kind of steered us in that direction, uh, audience member, w- with her, her idea of the lingering scent of a Denny's breakfast, a 3 a.m. Denny's <laughs> breakfast. That might be it. I know for some people, you know, the smell of cigarettes is an absolute turnoff, whereas for somebody else, it may be a turn on. I mean, a, the heavy scent of a cigar coming off the golf course. I don't know. I've just always found that with these unscientific polls, typically if you put other on there, you'll get some pretty great comments. I mean, that's the peak behind the curtain, to be honest with you. How did this how did this get on your radar? I mean, the, 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 you you literally wrote a book on the joy of sweat. Where did this journey begin for you?
5: So, you know, I think like most people, I'm slightly mortified by my own sweat. Um, I worry that I might sweat too much when I'm like doing a workout. I am reaching for the towel during the warm up, And so I, you know, thought, God, you know, I'm also a science journalist. So I know that like evolutionary biologists count um, humanity's ability to sweat as one of our, you know, very unique superpowers in the animal kingdom. So I thought, okay, I need to dig in more and find a little bit of serenity rather than shame in all the sweating that i certainly
0: do yeah um yeah but you know i mean it because it it, okay i can relate and i'll i'll, I'll just i'll just put it out there for you and i'll meet you in the middle on this one because i'm a sweater and 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 sometimes it's a real problem uh because when i start i can't stop and oftentimes it's when I'm wearing a tuxedo in a hot room with 1,500 people and I'm behind a podium with spotlights blasting on me and there are huge screens behind me amplifying the image and I can see the beat of sweat on my forehead. And I'm going, uh-oh, because we all know what happened to Richard Nixon in the TV debates. As soon as he started sweating, it was over for him because it says something, right? The public reads into it.
5: Yeah, but that's like manufactured humiliation, right? That's like a hundred years of deodorant and uh, antiperspirant advertising that says that, you know, you should be socially isolated if you don't buy our products or that threatens social isolation. And yeah, sure. Um, I do get that um, sweating is completely out of our control. And I think that's why we hate it so much in part Um, because, you know, you think about other things that are embarrassing. Like burping or farting And you know you can kind of you know Remove yourself briefly um, From a social situation to let that happen But when your body gets the cool down directive There is nothing stopping Those floods from coming out um, yeah. So it's out of our control Humans don't like that
0: You're right and and we do uh, Whether we realize it or not I mean it's a heavy word to use with judge But we do judge someone Or at least perceive somebody a certain way For example if we see sweat rings under their armpits right in a meeting or in a social setting there's a certain you know it's mortifying perhaps for the person or maybe not but but as members of the public we almost read into it do you do you think that is that the source of it is is it marketing and advertising do you think or was this a thing before that
5: so I do think that uh, people were worried about body odor. Um, there's like hilarious poems in like the ancient Roman era saying, you know, the reason she will not lie beneath your you is because of your armpits they smell like an, a goat so there's like I think you know there's always been some stigma about BO but for most of human history we've you know managed it with a little soap and water as well as you know a dab of perfume but a hundred years ago um, when the first deodorants and antiperspirants are coming out nobody wants to buy them because they think we don't need it and you know it's unhealthy to curb sweat is like the kind of attitude at the time but you know a very famous, uh, marketing firm called J. Walter Thompson is hired by this like high school girl named Edna Murphy, who wants to sell a product called odor. Oh no. And, you know, she can't sell it. And so when she hires, uh, um, J. Walter Thompson, who put a copywriter who had been a former traveling Bible salesman, um, on the you know job of trying to convince uh, Americans and Canadians actually to buy you know odor oh no because nobody really was buying this stuff. Um, they did this uh, strategy called whisper copy, which you'll see in literally every advertisement uh, today. And um, so they take out this big ad, and it's a beautiful arm of a woman and. she's dancing with a man and it says in the curve of a woman's arm and it goes on to say you know this should be a beautiful dainty thing but dear lord it's not um and in there is you know odor people are gossiping about you and worst of all you're not going to get a man And, you know, it's 1919 and, you know, people are so offended by this that they cancel their subscription to Ladies Home Journal where this appeared. But at the same time, sales for Odorono skyrocket and then literally all the other products take on this strategy that effectively say if you're not going to buy – deodorant or antiperspirant you're going to like be unloved and also you're going to lose your job so when they finally decide to start targeting men uh, it's the depression by this time it's the 30s and they're like dudes you are you know stinky nobody's going to tell you that you are. And if you sweat in the boardroom, you're going to, you know, lose your job or a career opportunity. And so, yeah, it's this like manufactured humiliation that makes it a $75 billion industry. And yes, sure. You know, I use, I'm not like uh, an anti-deodorant activist. I, I put this stuff on too. Cause like, you know, I, I get tired of my own pong and others, <laughs> um, but you know, I, you know, do it in recognition that, you know, this is something that I've been, you know, told to do by marketers. And my body is just really trying to cool down. Like, seriously, it's trying to keep me alive. And like, thank you, body.
0: I know that we've just met, And so this is somewhat of a strange uh, way to take this conversation. Uh, By the way, on a side note, Jill's watching this morning, and she's just chimed in again on what other uh, might qualify on the poll. And she says, new car smell. Um, If they've just bought you a Jag to drive you around in the new car smell can be very (laughs) popular under the other sense. But to to my point, um, there's something about the smell of your own uh, odor that like I I think to when I, when I'm out hiking in the back country for a week with the fellas, it's an annual tradition and, and we could probably talk about farts too. If we wanted to really get lowbrow in this conversation, people feel differently about the smell of their own than the smell of others. But sometimes if I, if I smell, if I kind of give my pit a little bit of a whiff on day three of a backcountry hike, as appalling as that might be, were I to be in a fancy restaurant or a business meeting, um, In the backcountry, to me, it's nice. It's like an accomplishment, right? It says something. Does our sweat tell us something?
5: Oh, yeah, it does, actually. So you have your own body odor print. You smell your own delicious way, just like I do, so much so that like a dog can track you, right, as it can track me just based on a T-shirt. And you know, the the funny thing about body odor is that we do communicate with other humans um, using smell. And you know, uh, one of my favorite examples of this was a study done um, by a group out of Israel and they videotaped people meeting for the first time. So if you think about most human greetings, they involve, you know, getting close up to somebody, whether it's a cheek kiss, a bow, a hug or a handshake where you actually literally get hands on collection of somebody else's body odor so anyway they do this study where they like videotape people meeting for the first time and after they shake each other's hands the subjects are like they're sniffing their hands and Nobody believed that they had done this. It was an unconscious reaction. So much so that they, like some of the subjects accused the scientists of having like deep faked the videos, Um, but they hadn't. And, you know, we learn all sorts of interesting things. Like we learn to identify the people that we love. Like parents can identify newborns just hours after birth. Siblings can identify each other's B.O. print after they haven't seen them for years. And humans can do all sorts of interesting Um, information collection. So we can sniff out when others are anxious, because when we're nervous, we produce a particularly strong pong. Um, There's all sorts of ways in which we are (laughs) assessing each other this way, um, you know, for better or for worse. And by the way, that handshake study has ruined handshakes for me, (laughs) but it's made like people watching at parties and conferences way more interesting
0: yeah well i i, I the, the art of the handshake uh or the let me say the tradition of the handshake um between what you've just told us and and then the pandemic too um i, I had an awkward interaction with someone the other day and i i'd actually sort of made, made a conscious decision i actually thought about i mean i'm talking in a, in a half a second but i actually thought and i was like Cause we've been doing the elbow pound for a while. And then I kind of got sick of that. It just seemed like theatrical and ridiculous. And then we started going with the fist pound. Right. And then I was like, for some reason I saw a friend I hadn't seen in a while. And in the extension of the arm, I, so I start like this. And then in the extension, I was like, no, I'm going for the shake, but it was like going to be one of my first shakes in a year and a half, literally. And, and, and so I'm approaching him. I, I start with the fist and I evolve into the shake. And he kind of like, is it with the fist? And I put the hand over the fit and it was awkward. And we, and, and we had this laugh and we ended up clasping hands. Uh, He told me it was the first time he'd shaken hands in a year and a half. For me, it was at least one of the few. And we had this conversation about whether or not handshakes will ever come back. Do you think they will? Or do do you think we've kind of moved on? I mean, there's going to be some residual impact from this pandemic. You think handshakes might be one of the things to fall?
5: I wonder. I mean, it is kind of a gross thing. Like, people don't wash their hands after they use the bathroom. We know this. And like, you know, it's kind of gross. And I've enjoyed not having a cold, you know, like I was lucky enough enough to not get COVID, but I also haven't had like a normal cold. And, you know, I think touching people's hands is probably, yeah, maybe it'll go out of style. But, you know, it's funny because you were reminding me of like, I don't know if you've ever done the cheek kiss thing, uh, but if you don't know which side to start on or how many there's gonna be, you can have some extremely awkward moments. So I think it's kind of funny that, you know, that awkwardness has now reached the handshake level where you're like, is it a fist bump? Is it a handshake? I mean, whoa, what are we doing?
0: (laughs) I've got a I've got a buddy that does the cheek kiss. Uh, but only with women, and I—I I, I can tell he creeps them out. As not, not—I can tell he creeps them out. People have told me, mutual friends of ours, that it creeps them out, and I've always thought. I mean, this is a real cultural thing in some cultures. I'm not cracking on that, but this guy, I think it is. It's just his way of getting up close with people. It's kind of a weird one. I, yeah, I'd be curious you to know. Should ask
5: him if he's sniffing them at the same time. That yeah. might, uh, maybe I'll, him maybe I'll to ask like curb that behavior. He, he
0: doesn't lack <laughs> confidence, so I may ask him next time as he's mid cheek smooch what he's endeavoring to accomplish. Are you, are you a hair sniffer or what, pal? Um, I was, I was really interested to hear you say that humans I- excrete, uh, you know, evidence of or an indicator of anxiety. Uh, do you think, I mean, are are the rest of us, I mean, all of us, are we picking up on that subconsciously? Because I I can say certainly for myself, I've never, I can't think of a time that I've ever been aware of that.
5: Yeah, so it, this is actually research that stemmed out of some uh, observations from law enforcement. Hmm. So uh Detectives had long noticed uh, that people that came into uh, an interrogation, they would, you know, smell like themselves, right? Like their own BO. Meanwhile, after being stressed out for, you know, however long the interrogation, they all left smelling the same, like as if there was this like anxiety top note that everybody produces when they're freaking stressed out. So scientists wanted to dig into this, and so they did this fun T-shirt study where they gave... uh, people T-shirts to, to wear and they either made them watch a nature documentary or they put them in front of a scary movie so that they were either sweating, you know, their own little pong or sweating out of fear. And then they gave it to a panel of sniffers who were, you know, complete strangers. And the panel of sniffers could distinguish which were the odors produced in fear versus the ones that were just, you know, normal B.O. And of course, the group that has the most interest in this is the military because you can imagine in a combat situation if you've got a lot of soldiers in a tank right um and one gets scared and they start producing this anxiety fear what if the others uh smell it also get afraid what if this compromises the mission so uh researchers funded by the military are trying to figure out like what is that chemical like what is that molecule and how to capture it like a poison gas or like carbon uh, CO2 sequestration, right? Like, how do you capture it and pull it away? But today, chemists haven't been able to figure out of the hundreds of molecules percolating off of our uh, armpits and into the air, um, which one is responsible for anxiety. But they're working on it.
0: That's fascinating stuff. Uh, what, what an amazing line of work you're in, first of all. And and questions are coming on the future of science journalism. So I, we'll leave some time for that. But you talked about detectives. Um, an investigation, and you write about. I had no idea about this. This is fascinating stuff. How how fingerprints and fingerprint analysis actually sweat really plays into that. Can you lay that out for us?
5: Yeah, sure. So most of the sweat that we you know produce the salty floods that are coming off our body to cool us down, that's sourced from the liquidy parts of blood. So pretty much your salty sweat is way more than just salt and water. It's everything that was in blood minus the big stuff like red blood cells and platelets and stuff like that. Okay, so because the sweat on your body is like a treasure trove of information, Forensic chemists are trying to analyze that information to find out details about people at a crime scene. So, you know, in the past, when people have analyzed fingerprints, right, they look at how the whirls and the swirls and they compare how a fingerprint looks to a criminal database. But what if they don't get a match? Then they don't know anything about the people who are at a crime scene. So now chemists are getting into it and they are trying to analyze the chemistry of a fingerprint because a fingerprint is actually just a sweat print. It's inked in your own sweat from your fingers, right? Um, And so, and analytical science has gotten to the point where, even from that trace amount left behind in a fingerprint, you can find out all sorts of secret information. Anything that's going around in your blood, it can come out. So, I went and got my index fingerprint uh, analyzed by this one forensic chemist, and she figured out very quickly that I had had a morning coffee because caffeine metabolites were like coming out in my, my fingerprint. Okay, that's not like super embarrassing or, or naughty, but had I spiked, my coffee with like vodka or done a line of cocaine or anything, um, that also would have come out. And so she's, for example, done these analyses in one particular case of a stalker who left a fingerprint uh, on a windowsill and uh, the detectives lifted the fingerprint, gave it to her to analyze, and she could tell that he was drinking alcohol and high on cocaine at the same time. And so, like, if you think about that, you know, in terms of like crime scene analysis, you can learn about the behavior and the health of people who are at a, a crime scene. On the surveillance side of things, it's a bit freaky, right? Because once this technology advances, you know, and gets into the public sector, you can imagine employers thinking, "Oh, I, I need to check uh, to make sure you haven't come to work intoxicated." And we have like fingerprints all over our desks, right? Mm-hmm. Or you. You can imagine, you know, over in the states, uh, health insurers saying, "No, you've got a pre-existing condition because you can diagnose uh, some cancers from um, proteins that also come out in sweat." On the other hand, there's also like a whole industry of people who are like juicy salivating at like the commercial potential because you know we all have our Fitbits, right? Um, we're all interested in like how many steps we take, our heart rate, our temperature. Well. You know, the next stage in this is you can imagine band-aids um, that collect, uh, you know, your your sweat. They've got some electronics and maybe they send a push signal to your smartphone um, after you've drunk a little bit too much to say, hey, dude, you need to take a cab home today. Don't like drive. Or, you know, even like think about the Olympics. Um, you've got a team sport happening, a bunch of players on a field and a coach on the sidelines monitoring, you know, the stress levels coming out in like the stress hormones coming out in, in the athlete's sweat. And it's like, Oh, I think I'm going to exchange that player now because they're showing signs of fatigue based on, you know, the information that's coming real time based on the sweat pouring out of those athletes body. So there's all sorts of really interesting and dystopian applications, um, and I really like kind of hope privacy advocates get on this before it, you know, hits the mainstream. Because all of this is still kind of in development, but we're not like far away from deployment.
0: I can't when I hear someone like you that's done this research outline the the real world, tangible, practical, doable applications of some of this tech. I'm I'm almost equal parts excited and terrified. You know, and and part of there's there's this Luddite side of me. I'm going to be honest with you that that w- wants to just I, I, I kind of feel like we're good. I mean, I don't really mean I don't really mean this, but but, you know, we have backup cameras on our cars and some of them can kind of sort of drive themselves. And all of my music, all the music I could ever want to listen to in the world is is right here. And I I, I can pay for things by tapping my phone. And I kind of feel like we're good now. And maybe we should just stop. I don't really mean it, but do you know what I mean?
5: Yeah, I do. I kind of feel nervous about it too, like really nervous because, you know, for somebody like me who sweats a lot, I'm not just leaving fingerprints. I'm like dripping on my yoga mat. You know, what are we going to be learning? And also like if these private companies have all your information in a database, you know, what if they sell that information? Right? Like how often you drink alcohol, because that's coming out in your sweat. Or what if they're, you know, hacked or there's a data breach in some way, right? Like it just feels like we are giving so much information out already in, you know, our Amazon likes and, you know, what we, but like, this is like a whole nother level of biological information. It's like giving, you know, samples of your like innermost secrets um, every, you know, 10 seconds to some database in the cloud as your like sweat is pouring out. And it's like, ooh, interesting alcohol. Ooh, interesting, you know,
0: yeah. This or that. Yeah. So, well, yeah, and, and I, I'm worried about it. Even in the examples you, you you pose, I mean, you say like employers might be able to find out, you know, if somebody's impaired at work, and, I, and, and actually, I think probably the average person might say, well, that's fine. Uh, you shouldn't be high on blow at work anyway, and so I wouldn't, la- you know, I wouldn't maybe lack sympathy, though. Though I would say the ethics around the collection of that information. Um, Would probably be relevant and worth discussion on the flip side, though, your very next example. And we talked about actually like mapping out genomes and we talked about a lot of really interesting work uh, being done about a month ago on the show and the ethical implications of that, including uh, insurance companies being able to collect data on people and, and essentially deny them coverage. I think that's a very real scenario that people should be especially concerned about and just because it's not loud and brash and obvious and in front of our faces doesn't mean it wouldn't happen um i think that's a huge area for concern and and i do agree with you i think that that privacy commissioners and privacy advocates i don't think that that we know enough about it i mean as a matter of fact i mean what is the average person i've just noticed i just updated my phone and I can't even remember the details of it, but all of a sudden when I opened Instagram and Twitter and Facebook and for the first time, it said, you know, this new update requires us to ask whether or not we can track your web activity and apply it to the advertising. And I said no on all of them. No way. Why would I want that? Right. Yet the very next day. This is a real example. I'm telling you, it happened to me a few days ago. An audience member reached out and said, "Hey, we know we have an air if puri- you have an air purification unit in your studio, and we're looking for one for our home. And what specific air purification unit are you using?" And I DM'd them back with the information, and then I checked my Instagram a couple hours later, and up comes that air purification unit as an advertisement on my Instagram, and I. Like, I'm not saying that they're getting into my banking or they know my social insurance number, although I wouldn't rule that out. But I mean, that stuff just freaks me out.
5: Yeah, I don't blame you. I mean, all of our Google searches, if you have a Gmail account, all of this is being connected to each other, you know, along with all the algorithms of the things we like on social media, the things we click on or don't like. Yeah, it's a bit alarming. And particularly, you know, with the DNA collection, um, it's actually harder to collect DNA, right? You actually have to find a hair or, you know, a sample of, you know, your old coffee cup to get like some spit, right? our sweat is being left in so many other places so you know i do feel like um the dna thing is uh, a lot more advanced like the technology uh, to analyze dna uh is you know in many more hands than others but once sweat analysis becomes mainstream it's so much easier to collect a sample of somebody's sweat just from a fingerprint than to like make sure you track down a hair or you know uh, you know a coffee cup
0: yeah if you're just tuning in if you're streaming your audio live on the mixler audio app right now we're talking to Sarah Averts who's a, a science journalist uh, based out of Ottawa a professor at Carleton University she's the author of the joy of sweat Sarah you argue that sweat is humanity's evolutionary superpower how come
5: okay so it could be first of all so much worse um but you know when you when you find out how other animals uh cool down you're going to be so grateful for the floods that you have but it's our evolutionary superpower because it's super efficient so we can cool down while on the move, which means that um, we have this huge amount of real estate where the naked ape, right? That can, you know, release sweat onto our skin and it literally pulls the heat away and up into the atmosphere. If you think about a dog, right? It pants because it's only naked area is its tongue and it's using spit, the water in spit to cool off its whole body off that little tiny bit of real estate. Whereas we, because we've got a huge amount um, could run marathons and in our evolutionary history on the savannah if you think you know most of the prey that we want to hunt runs way faster than us so it sprints away But because it's much more furrier and doesn't have as efficient uh, a cooling down technique, it needs to slow down and stop. Meanwhile, we can run perhaps slower, but catch up, forcing that animal to run again and and again until they die of heat stroke. Meanwhile, we can just keep running and exercising, cooling down at the same time. And in particular, um, this evaporative cooling, like evaporating water off a surface to cool it down is super efficient. Seals will pee on themselves because they don't have sweat glands, but they need to cool down. So they'll dispatch the other kind of bodily fluid that they have available. Vultures will poop on their own legs. Honeybees will puke on themselves. All sorts of animals pant, right, relying on saliva. So all of these animals are evaporating bodily fluids off themselves. Meanwhile, we don't have to dispatch gross bodily fluids. We have one specifically devoted just to cooling us off. And so, yeah, it is salty, it is sweaty. We produce floods of it, but oh my God, it could be worse. Like imagine being uh, like, you know, in a really packed room, everybody really hot. And instead of sweating, they were dispatching other bodily fluids. Like let's just thank evolution for, you know, that gift.
0: Jerry what are you doing I'm I'm so hot man I just can't help myself Uh, yeah (laughs) Uh, you know I thought I thought of the uh, one of my favorite celebrities of all time Uh, I don't know anything about his personal life I just know how cool he appears if I say all right all right all right everybody's going to know exactly who I'm talking about but I remember reading an interview once with Matthew McConaughey who said the secret to looking like he does was just to break a sweat once a day man and that was the that was the that was the advice I thought you know that's great advice just try to break a sweat once a day we look at advertising online for you know pelotons and other bikes and things like that and I wonder if culture around sweat is is maybe changing a little bit you see people that are absolutely dripping people that are soaked and they're celebrated and they should be because they've accomplished this feat they got off their duffs and they went out and exercised do you think that culture is changing a little bit with regards to how we perceive or even celebrate sweat
5: so there's this really amazing catharsis that happens when you sweat in, in like large quantities, right? You get happy hormones, like, you know, endorphins, like that's responsible for the runner's high, but those happy hormones come like whenever you sweat voluminously. And so, you know, even though we stigmatize sweat and spend $75 billion a year buying anti-sweat products, that's the size of the deodorant and perspirant industry. There's this equally large industry that, you know, is selling us, you know, gym memberships and all sorts of online things to break a sweat, right? Plus there's this whole like history of, you know, cultural sweating. So if you think, you know, through most of human history, we've liked to break a sweat, whether it's now or in the past, you know, you have the, you know, indigenous people of, of North America and their sweat lodges. You have the Jim bangs in Korea, the hammams in the middle East, the banyas, the saunas. We also like, like to break a sweat because there is like a chemical catharsis that happens when you sweat in large quantities. And, you know, perhaps, you know, the sauna isn't as popular as a gym membership, but you do get that like happy hormones that happen when you break a sweat because, you know, you've effectively made your heart work a lot faster and your heart um, beating really fast has, you know, brought on these like happy chemicals in your body.
0: Yeah. That's one of life's great joys, isn't it? Like a hot sauna until you can barely stand it. And then a cold shower right after to me is just absolutely fantastic. Did you, uh, through the course of your research and putting this book together, was it, did you have kind of a, was there a moment where you went, Whoa, with regards to the results yes. of something you discovered?
5: Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> so many woes. Uh, I mean, it was, you know, perhaps when I went to a sweat dating event in Moscow where people like smell each other's armpits and, in- in- Like to find love.
0: Oh, go
4: on. Go on.
0: Oh, you want to hear about that?
4: Yeah, I'm happy to
5: tell you. Oh, my God. So, um, The idea is pretty simple, you know. If you are going to find a date, whether it's like a one night stand or you know your life partner, there is going to be a make or break moment, um, and that make or break moment is going to be when you smell the bo of that person. And so, instead of like basing uh, the triage of who you're going to date on you know optics or hobbies or you know who knows what else, why not pick bo because you know. If it doesn't work, it's going to be a a no-no. And so what actually happens in practice is you go to these events and uh, the first thing you're doing, you're given like a wet wipe and you're like supposed to take off all the, you know, products that you've put on. Then you go through this like high intensity exercise and work up a sweat, at which point you're given a cotton pad to dab your parts Um, and then that is put into a jar and the jar is numbered. Only, you know, the number and the organizers know the number. And, uh, then you like, sniff through the jars. They're put on a table and you have to pick your top five. And if I thought your BO was in my top five and you thought my BO was in your top five, then we would be a match. And if we were a match, because this was in Moscow, in Russia, we would get both a a VIP bracelet to an all-you-can-drink vodka cocktail lounge to find out whether the optics and the hobbies also matched up. So yeah, this was probably the most surreal experience Uh, of the book um yeah Uh, but I also yeah there's so many other like there's so many weird sweat weird and wonderful sweat cultures like uh, the aufgoes theater where people perform uh theater in a really hot sauna to you know hundreds of naked participants who have just done the wave I did that probably the weirdest moment of my life um so cool though
0: super cool super cool
5: yeah also super cool super cathartic because you know um it's great so yeah lots of there's so many weird and wonderful sweat you know Activities to be done in this world.
0: Wow, is it is it actually? Um, let me remind people that you're a science journalist. When you talk <laughs> yeah. about um, uh, my wife, I, I don't know if I want to get sued by naming the specific product that I have, but I have this little sort of dab roller that, that quite frankly, I've been using about once every two months. Uh, well, who cares? It's called dry saw. Uh, I've been using it about once every two months, and what it does is like for really heavy sweaters. I don't know if there's like a, a lot of iron in it or something. Are you familiar with it? And and you roll it on, and 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 you got to keep your arms down. And typically, you do it right before you fall asleep because it's actually quite uncomfortable. Um, but it kind of shuts down your pits for a while. And for really heavy sweaters, I know for me, it was a godsend through high school because it eliminated those embarrassing sweat rings. When my wife saw it just for the first time about a month ago in my closet, she was like, what are you doing with this stuff? It's so bad for you. And I've not actually researched to see if it is actually bad for me, but I suspect it might be uh, considering what it does and and how it works. Did you do any research on whether or not things like dry salt or antiperspirants are actually unhealthy for the human body?
5: So first you have to kind of know how they work to, for me to answer this question. So the way that your body odor from your armpits like originates is actually not you, it's the bacteria living in your armpits. So we, there, we actually have two kinds of sweat glands. There's the stuff that gives you the salty floods, right? That helps you with cooling. And then there, there is another. Uh, And it appears at puberty and it's responsible for morphing your armpits into stink zones. Mm. And that second kind of gland, the sweat is actually pretty waxy. Bear with me. I'm going to answer your question. (laughs) Um, And that waxy uh, sweat is actually more like earwax than the salty floods that help us cool down. And the bacteria living in your armpit eat that relatively odorless sweat. And it's their metabolic byproducts, which is like a fancy scientific euphemism for bacteria poop that makes you sweaty. So good news, your BO, the strong pong, not your fault, fault of the bacteria, bad news, the bacteria poop is what makes you stinky. Okay, so the way that deodorants work is they're antiseptics. So they like call or the kill the bacterial populations in your armpit that would, um, you know, make you stinky at least for a certain time until they bounce back. And a perspirants actually physically block the pores. So it's a two for one, because they are cutting off the buffet of sweat for bacteria that would want to eat it and turn it into stink zones. But they're also blocking the other kind of sweat glands, the salty floods, and effectively making your armpits kind of a dry zone. And the only thing that works is aluminum salts. to, to block sweat pores. It's just uh, a reality. And, you know, there's been a lot of concern that aluminum might be problematic because uh, it's a neurotoxin. And, you know, we don't really want to have too much aluminum in our body. But that being said, our bodies are used to getting rid of aluminum. It's the most common metal in the earth's mantle. And our kidneys are extremely good at getting rid of it. And anytime you eat potatoes, you know, spin it like the it's in everything. Aluminum's in everything. And so uh, a recent uh, EU uh, study, um, effectively the European Union has this like scientific committee. They forced uh, deodorant companies to do a big longitudinal long-term-ish study on whether aluminum is problematic. And yeah, that just came in in 2020 um, after years. And it, looks like it's not, you know, a problem mm. to, you know, wear antiperspirant. Now you could argue, um, well, isn't sweat for cooling us down. So if you put like antiperspirant here, you're like drying out those areas. I would say, you know, of all the things to worry about, you know, you got a lot of other real estate that you can use for cooling. Yeah. Um, and so I wouldn't super worry about, you know, cutting off your ability to cool down from your armpit. And in fact, you know, when you write a book about sweat people tell you all sorts of interesting things and like i know this one woman whose husband sweats really heavily behind uh his knee um but just one knee and so he puts antiperspirant you know behind his knee because his pants would literally get wet um and you know he was embarrassed about that and she was you know worried you know is it bad and you know there's a lot of other real estate between you know your armpits and behind your knee to cool off now if you're putting antiperspirant on your whole body, that's a bad idea because you know you're preventing your body from cooling down. But you know, if you put it in uh, a little part here and there, it's probably not going to hurt you.
0: Fascinating stuff. Um, this has been one of my favorite interviews since we launched this show. Uh, th- this is really amazing, and it's something that it applies to everybody, right? I mean, you know, everybody can relate to something you've been putting in front of us. I want to remind everybody uh, that Sarah Avert's new book is The Joy of Sweat. The strange science of perspiration. It caught the attention of the New York Times. You may have heard of that newspaper, uh, who placed it right on its 2021 must-read list uh, for this summer. Let me ask you: This is a hard swerve. In in closing, uh, you teach science. Journalism And there's been two really interesting um, developments, I think, or conversations that have occurred over the past couple of years uh, w- impacting journalism. Number one is uh, sensitivity and uh, greater understanding uh, and, and respect in storytelling around uh, indigenous stories and reconciliation. And the other is reporting around the pandemic. And COVID-19. And I think that journalists uh, across the country and for that matter around the world have for all intents and purposes in many circumstances done an amazing job trying to get up to speed on uh, issues and, and science that's that has been new to a lot of people that has been developing uh, whether we're talking about transmission or masks or whatever the case may be. Um, what observations have you made about the present and the future of science journalism in particular, and specifically coming out of, uh, and I'm going to say we're not out of the woods yet, but as we slowly emerge out of this pandemic.
5: Yeah. So do we have uh, another three hours maybe? Yeah. I mean, uh, technically, but, okay. sure. But. <laughs> no. So one of the things that's been really interesting to me is that, you know, this pandemic was one of the first times we saw science happening in real time. So most of the time in the past that you hear about a new scientific discovery, what's happened is the researchers have done their work. They've published it in a paper that has been peer reviewed. So there's been a whole bunch of like different scientists fighting about the results and like discussing it. And then once it's peer reviewed, it you know gets dispatched into the world at which point a journalist will pick it up and report upon it. So there's been a lot of due diligence that has happened before uh, publication and before the media has picked it up. Of course, during a pandemic, um, science is happening in real time and the media is trying to, you know, report on what's going on as it's happening. And what's interesting to me is that I think the way that science journalism has been done in the past where, you know, a study comes out and then we present it, uh, people have gotten the impression that science is this sort of like Moses, goes to get the Ten Commandments kind of thing, right? Like the scientists do the work and you know, the information is there. Whereas actually the way science happens in real life is messy, right? There's a lot of debate. There is it's constantly evolving. Mm-hmm. And it's not like, you know, one study is the be all and end all. It's the like combination of lots of studies together where you then kind of assess, okay, this is the consensus, right? We've seen this with climate change. You know, one study alone does not say that the climate is changing. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, right? Are what, People had been used to make these sorts of statements. And so with um, you know the pandemic, even if you look at like the mask stuff, right? So initially people thought, okay, it's a coronavirus, It's probably like SARS, the one that we knew from 2003. That one was not transmitted uh, by aerosols, right? And so they thought, okay, what we know about coronaviruses, which, by the way, was not a lot, is that, okay, we don't need masks because, you know, it's not going to spread that way. As science uh, evolved and as we learned more about this particular coronavirus, we're like, crap, it does, uh, you know, aerosolize. And so that's why there was this change. And now masks are recommended. But, you know, instead of being like, oh, good, you know, policy is, you know, evolving with the science people are like everybody's wishy-washy whereas like my take on it is if they didn't change the rules based on new information they would be like like what? You know, that's like, you know, not evolving with the times. So, yeah, I think what's really happened is people have seen just how kind of um, discussion and consensus driven sciences and that it's not like a Moses on the Ten Commandments kind of thing where, you know, one study delivers the message. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's probably one of my take home messages. And we can talk for the next five hours about the others.
0: I just wish I, I wish I would love to sit in audit one of your classes I, I would just absolutely love that in the meantime i want to remind people uh, they can buy the joy of sweat the strange science of perspiration anywhere you find good books the author uh, our guest today sarah Averts, uh who teaches uh by the way she's an award-winning science journalist i should mention based out of ottawa teaches science journalism at carlton university we took you way into overtime but i've enjoyed every <laughs> single minute of it thank you so much for this
5: this has been really fun that has and been. Uh, yeah have a lovely day
0: thanks sarah um Great booking, Hoyles. That was fantastic. Yay. I feel like that, like she said, she's like, you got five hours. We could keep going on that. I mean, that was amazing stuff.
3: Yeah, I mean, that's what you always say, right? So I was
0: like, oh, she is our people. Yeah, she is our people. Wayne wrote in, by the way, in the middle of the interview Uh, He said, am I the only one that likes my women musky? He says, there's nothing like a woman fresh out of a week in the bush. (laughs) As we check in live on our unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll when looking for a partner for the night or forever, which scent impacts you most? Simple and freshly showered. This, is, this isn't even an exciting poll. This is one of the polls that it's just like when we had 10 votes, it's the same as when we're going to have a thousand. Fifty five percent approximately. Fifty four percent say simple, freshly showered. Thirty five percent enjoy a subtle perfume or cologne. Uh, just under eight percent prefer the natural musk and then three percent holding strong at other, which is which is, you know, that's where we're getting our most interesting and oftentimes hilarious comments.
3: I just like that. I'm right. I mean, about the natural, about the natural, freshly, the simple, freshly showered. I just I I like that. I have my my bias is confirmed.
0: You know what? You know what I'm realizing I should have put on there that I didn't, which is probably the one that registers most with me uh, is like a good laundry detergent. When somebody smells like, why are you shaking your head? Are you one of the are you one of the people that buy these mysterious product, the laundry soap that announces that it has no scent?
3: I just, I hate, like it gives me, like I've said before. Oh, you gives, have a sensitivity. It gives me a headache. So I'm right, just like, right, fair enough, fair and enough. And when there's those ads, they're like, boost it. So it feels like a, even after it's been used, it's still fresh. And I'm like, no.
0: Yeah. I like the ones that are like, it smells like it's just been brought in off the clothesline. That is a great smell. That is a great smell, right? So uh, maybe I should have included that on the poll. Uh, Well, good thing it's unscientific and unofficial, or else I'd really have egg on my face. If all this talk about sweating, watch this, has you looking to cool down, might we recommend the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. They wanted us to remind you that they are proudly serving, once again, the fan favorite Kit Kat Blizzard. The Kit Kat Blizzard is made with real Kit Kat candy bar pieces and a chocolatey topping blended with DQ's signature soft serve. You can get your hands on a Kit Kat Blizzard by visiting the Dairy Queens at Baseline Road, Y Gardens, Westmount, Newcastle, Nemeo, and Palisades. Make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent Want to let you know as well, for the month of August, they've got a big fundraiser coming up. These guys care about community. Big time. As a matter of fact, how I first heard about these Dairy Queens, we were working on a fundraiser together way back in the day, and they're the entrepreneurs that really care. We're proud to partner with them, and we encourage you to show them your business whenever possible. Speaking of business, it's no secret that running a small business is no joke. It's not easy. Life as a business owner is certainly hectic, to say the least. Let Alberta Blue Cross help you find a little bit of peace of mind with a group benefit plan. They offer flexible health, dental, life, and disability coverage for your employees. And even better, you can let your employees enroll and manage their own coverage at any time on any device. It makes life easier for them. It makes life easier for you, quite frankly. Alberta Blue Cross. Explore your options today at ab.bluecross.ca. And of course, we talk to you about our friends at Kubi Energy every single day. They present positive reflections. As you know, on the first day of our broadcast week, typically a Monday, on a long weekend, it'll be on a Tuesday. You can send in your positive reflections, random acts of kindness or otherwise to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Of course, this week, Kubi Energy, we're down to the final stretch when it comes to the Real Talk Net Zero Solar Contest presented by Kubi. We've introduced you during yesterday's positive reflections to our three finalists and now real talkers we need you to decide who's going to win that absolutely free solar installation here's how you do it you go to ryan and then right at the top of the page you'll see our question of the week presented by our official research and strategy partners at y station we're asking you how you feel about solar what motivates you to Go Green, so to speak, or what hurdles might be standing in the way. And then when you get to the final three pages, technically four, of our question of the week, we'll introduce you to our three finalists, and then we ask you to vote. Next Monday we will introduce you or rather it's not next monday is it it's next tuesday because we'll observe the long weekend as a team next tuesday during positive reflections we will announce who real talkers selected as the winner of the real talk net zero solar contest presented by kubi energy thank you in advance for your votes we're hoping to see hundreds of them as we award free clean energy to somebody for the next 30 years Thanks to the team at Y Station, we do have the results of our question of the week from last week, and this was a really fun one. We asked you about pets. We asked you about dogs and cats and gerbils and budgies and pythons and tarantulas and newts and everything else, and it was pretty neat to see what you told us. Now, here are some of the high-level pieces. I mean, these are the results of the surveys filled out by so many of you. Let's take a look. These presented by the team at Y Station. If real talkers could be a pet... If you could be a pet, 52% of you told us you'd be a dog, 37% of you told us you'd be a cat, and 4% of you told us that you'd be some other super cool thing, like one of you suggested a sea otter, which I thought might be actually kind of a cool animal to be. Here's something else that you told us, 35% of real talkers, one in three, believe that their pet, your pet, has what it takes to be a social media star, And, of course, we told you, by way of an interview, you can find in our YouTube or podcast archives how you can turn your pet into a social media star. One in three of you believe that that is the case. 93% of you believe that your pet is the best pet in the entire world, prompting the team at Y Station to wonder, what's happening with the other 7%? Y'all need a hug. I thought that that was kind of interesting. You know what I thought is like most people will say that their pet is the best pet in the entire world. And I wondered if that might be the 7% may have been people we caught him on a bad day, right? Maybe spot ate the arm off the leather couch or maybe dolly relieved herself on the area rug. It may have been just an in the moment type diversion on that vote. You know, you never know what might've been going on there, but 93% of you believe that let's get a look back to some of the other results presented by the team at Y station. 89% of real talkers almost 9 in 10 believe that your pet has some kind of special communicative bond with them their human companion. Do you feel that with Ranger? Oh, absolutely. I like I don't have to explain. How does it, yes. it manifest it? Can you explain it? Is it is it explainable? Um No. It just happens. That's kind of the point. Is he can't necessarily put it into words. Sam, do you share that with Sophie? Yeah, I. You know, I think it's
1: it's most obvious when um, when I watch her communicate with strangers versus communicate with Kelly and I. Ooh. So when she's around Kelly and I, or like to that extent, my parents or my sister or people that she knows well, she. She's. We call it her best behavior versus how she actually is. Like she's, she's good at being on her best behavior around other people, and she gets a little bit more of that husky vocalization out, a little bit more of that sass in her voice comes out when she's around us, which is kind of maybe a bit of a human quality. Oh yeah,
0: right. Yeah. I mean, we're
1: all that's how we are in front of strangers. You and you, outside the there's house. uh there, there was a study done with puppies. Where uh, basically, like, nearly newborn puppies, they took them and put them in situations where they were with human companions and they were without human companions. And they found, almost right from birth, dogs inherently know to rely on the humans around them for support. Ah. Like, they have that bond, like, straight out of the womb.
0: Do you know, is it it because the humans are the ones... I mean, I guess not technically at the puppy stage, but it, it does it have to do with feeding, I wonder, or more
1: than that? I mean, that is how they did the study is they, yeah. used, they used basically hiding treats and, and sometimes the humans would give them help and other times the humans wouldn't. But yeah. yeah. Guys,
0: we had an interview about this. Yeah, I know. But I'm just, you know, we're just- We we're had just an interview have, about we're this. We're it out, Hoyles. This or is they small said that talk. They we're we're going to were... get into the beers soon. You know what I
3: mean? <laughs> that it's evolutionary that the dogs have come to rely on humans. So they are like- just refined in their ability to As they
0: were welcomed in from wolves That's right Yeah, yeah. Which which always blows my mind too To think that You have a every... wild animal in your house well, that, A couple of them Well that That And also just the fact that Every breed Came from I mean you know Thousands and thousands and thousands And thousands of years ago One Sort of general Prototype mm. You know Like a St. Bernard And a Chihuahua have the same origin now people are going to be walking watching right now or listening to the podcast and they're going to say there they go again this this show has such a dog bias it's deplorable you want to know why because statistically you have told us i don't like using the word of ownership but let's say companionship 83 percent of real talkers with a pet have a dog 65 percent of now these could be the same households right people could vote more than once on this one 65 percent of real talkers have a cat 33 percent one in three have a fish and then it goes down from there but this is pretty interesting like 17 percent of real talkers almost one in five have a small rodent in the house like in, in in a domesticated scenario maybe more of us have them elsewhere mice rats hamsters and the like maybe chinchillas just another fun word to say 14% have birds 8% have reptiles which is higher than i thought it would be 7% these are a shout out to our rural real talkers 7% have a domesticated farm animal 4% amphibians 2% keep insects which i was intrigued by i don't know if that means like you know little sally went out and 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 captured a daddy long legs in the mason jar punched some breathing holes in there and you know, throws some leaves in, and does that hurt your heart a little bit? It does. It's not going li- to like live very long. Yeah, but it's a daddy long legs. I mean,
3: have you? Mm, no.
0: Okay, Sarah. Do you? If you have a wasp in the house, you try to get it out safely, or does it get the rolled up magazine treatment?
3: Always t- to safety. Really?
0: I shouldn't tell you what's going on at our house right now. We've got external. Yeah, yeah. would, would it really bother you to know that we we have we have a serious wasp infestation and it's currently as we speak being sprayed down with that bot? Would you let a wasp infestation fester under your deck? No. Yeah. Sometimes you got uh, yeah. sometimes you have to exercise what I learned as a young man to be dominion over the actually, Sam, do you mind you know what, exactly what I'm asking for here? Sometimes uh, dominion over the animals sometimes you got to flex two <laughs> percent of real talk i don't even know if this is is this true two percent of real talkers keep a large rodent a ferret a marmot or a capybara no two percent capybaras are so flipping cute they are but I, domesticated in north america that i don't know yeah
3: Tigers, there are more tigers in North America than they are like in the wild. So I thought you didn't watch
0: Tiger King. Oh it's just in
3: the Zeitgeist. It's just in the Zeitgeist. Girl Guides Honor. Okay. I did not watch Tiger King.
0: We asked about your companion animals and other interesting pets because I think four no five percent of you said that you have something super cool that was not on that list. When you said I had a saltwater tank for a long time with live coral in it. And we were thinking of getting an octopus, but the lifespan in captivity is sad. So we decided against it. Right. There you go. Another says I had a squirrel monkey back in the 70s. It was acceptable back then. (laughs) Fair comment. Ross had one on Friends. Yes. Although that was in the 90s, which is like an eternity ago. Yeah. Isn't it like 1990 was 30 years ago does that ever just poof, says uh, the squirrel monkey was a great pet but very messy we had him for about 10 years others talk about <laughs> i think the mic probably picked that up well i don't know i'm sure that it, I, i'm sure that it went to the farm and went out to the farm and lived out its days in a pasture with all of the other squirrel monkeys a horse uh, a show jumper a competition show jumper A real talker kept a queen ant for a while. As a kid, I always wanted an ant farm. That would be one of the coolest things to keep until it falls and breaks and smashes, and then you have a real problem. A real talker kept a rooster. Said he was born with a a wry neck and a splayed leg, so he couldn't stand or move his head properly, and he had an eye infection. Daughter took him to the vet a few times, hand fed him, medicated his eye, had him in the house for months, bandaged his legs to help him stand. He's now very handsome, if not a bit socially awkward and bumbly. <laughs> that sounds to me to be the type of rooster I'd like to meet. Yeah. Real talkers have kept stingrays, hermit crabs. This is fascinating stuff. Fascinating insight into this. When it comes to dressing your pet up, Forty four percent of you said pets are not people and dressing them up is weird. Twenty six percent of you said, yes, but only functional clothing like cold weather gear. But I think that's a totally different scenario. We have a a short haired dog, a boxer. Uh, We would not be able to walk him in the winter without a coat. I mean, that would just be, quite frankly, inhumane. Uh, And then there's the boots, too. There's nothing like watching a dog wearing boots for the first time. Amazing. 16% of you said your animals absolutely refuse to wear clothes. 9% said they're not happy about it, but I love it so much. And 3% of you believe, yes, my my pet loves fashion. So there you go. Fascinating stuff. Fashion. Fashion. You may have heard of it. What about your pet are you most grateful for? Here are some of the comments that you wrote in to us. Balancing your mental health. One of you said your pet calms your anxiety and soothes your soul. One of you said that. I mean, that's one particular comment, but I bet you the majority of us would acknowledge that. Certainly, I would find mental health benefits from living with our two dogs absolutely amazing. One of you said Apex, your adventure pal. Apex is a powder hound, a wheel dog, a paddle pup, a patio aficionado, and a traveling fiend. I kind of feel like we need to meet Apex by the way, the team at Grand Dog Essentials Quality Raw Food, they reached out to us and said, whenever you do that real talk tailgate, they're in. We're, we're going to have like a dog area. We'll see how we can work that out. That'll be pretty fun. Another says it's probably companionship, but the ability to lie in bed and just rub her tummy for a half hour, it's so soothing and it releases so much stress. Another says the soothing presence of a grumpy cat. Another one of you enjoys watching fish wars in your seven hundred fifty liter tank. To give you perspective, that's just under the size of an average hot tub. Fascinating. I to me, I don't have the discipline or the. I mean, I, I think keeping a, a, a fish tank healthy and clean and proper. And I know you can find ways to manage them and introduce some of the, you can do ecological tweaks that where they almost clean themselves. But that to me, I when, when you walk into a home and see a massive saltwater tank in particular, that to me is one of the coolest things. So neat. I love this. It, you, you told us you believe your pet has a special communicative bond. You said that you know, 9% of you believe that your pet gets you in a way that other people don't. of you said that you love that your pet loves you unconditionally, and they seem to be attuned to what you need. And 5% of you acknowledge that your pet sees you as a food dispensing unit. You feed, they eat. Appreciate the honesty. And we wanted to include this question and, and I'll remind you, if you do support us on Patreon, we're so grateful for that. Uh, our Patreon supporters allow the show to continue to grow and provide some stability to our revenue, which we're so grateful for. You can learn more about supporting us on Patreon via the link at the top of the page at RyanJesperson.com. Every week, our Patreon supporters receive the full top line report from YStation. station. So they get to really dig into the data, read all the comments. It's a really neat uh, perk of being a Patreon supporter. We wanted to ask after you lose a pet. I was talking to my friend Tammy about this yesterday. Uh, she's lost her beautiful pup, and she has an opportunity to, to get in on a litter of dogs that she's always loved. Can you imagine a cross between a Great Pyrenees, a Bernese Mountain Dog, and a, and a, and a Newfoundlander? First of all, it's gonna be about 180 pounds, I would imagine, full grown. Huge. Big guy. Huge. You're gonna you're gonna be grooming it and, and brushing it almost every single day, and absolutely nobody will mess with your property. But Tammy told me yesterday and I'm not gonna name the pup because if I name the pup, everybody's gonna know who I'm talking about. So I'll respect her privacy here. But she said I'm I'm really trying to decide whether or not it's too soon. And we had an exchange on whether or not it might help or hinder her emotional health and we asked after you lose a pet how long until you get another 44 percent of you said after a respectful mourning period so it's somewhat subjective you can start thinking about it 31 percent of you said not for a while i don't think i could give another pet what it needs while my heart is so broken i respect that nine percent of you said my pet wanted me to be happy they'd want me to get another pet as soon as possible and six percent And here's an interesting one. 6% said, never again. I'm going to spare myself the heartache. Somebody that I care about very much, somebody very close to me lost a dog that they loved dearly. Mm -hmm. And they told us that after she passed, that was it for them. They didn't think they could go through that again. I thought it was really interesting. A lot of you filled in the blanks on that. You said, you know, we took one month to get a new pet when we lost ours. I couldn't cope with the empty feeling in our home which I think would be huge. I want I'd like to I know this is a difficult conversation for people but I'd like to know do you do you not reuse? That's kind of a but the same dog bed, the same collar, the same water dish or do you go all new? Would seeing your old pups collar on a new pup warm your heart or break it? Personal experience. Um,
3: I like little reminders of Emma. Yeah. Um, And so her bed is definitely... I'm also like, you know me, I don't like to waste anything. I I don't like to just throw things out unnecessarily. And so it's a nice little reminder that Ranger is using Emma's bed. I also got Emma's dog uh, tag made into a necklace. Oh, really? I wear it when I go on hikes and stuff. So I'm always like, Emma, you're with me.
0: Oh, Sarah, that's amazing.
3: And uh, I don't know. For me, I... I feel like the grief is a reminder of my love for Emma and like what she meant to me. So, the grief I don't think will ever go away. I will. I never aim to replace Emma. I never can replace Emma. Um, There will always be an Emma-shaped gap in my in my heart.
0: Sam, would you? Do you think you could? I I, I always feel like this is an awkward conversation to talk. Like, like, let me ask you this more in a hypothetical way. Because I like it's kind of a when we start using pups names, it becomes much more personal. Can you see yourself reusing a dog collar? No,
1: no. I think I I agree with Sarah. Some of the more utility stuff, beds, water bowls, that kind of stuff is, you know, that's that's just that's just sort of dog supplies. A collar is so personal. I think you've got to retire the collar. It is.
0: Yeah. And I think you can hang the call like people hang the collar on a nail in the garage or something like that. Like it's not you don't get rid of it. But I don't know if another pup wears it.
1: I've seen people who will like have their pup cremated and they'll they'll put the ashes in an urn and put the collar around it. Oh, that's a neat idea.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I'm not even checking the live chat right now because I know this is not we're going to end up crying at the rest of the day. But these are all these are all wonderful. Like, how about this real talker that came in and said, why would you monsters even bring up the idea that pets could die? These are my sweet angel babies. Another says, I love my dog so much, but I don't think I could go through the puppy or training phase again. We'll enjoy our beautiful girl and then we'll be empty nesters with more freedom. Another says, even if I am heartbroken, I'll wait two or three months and then go to a rescue to provide a good loving home and give room to an animal in need. And finally, with weird food likes, we ask you, what's the one unusual thing that you feed your pet? Olive juice was on the list another said the hearts of three different animals i don't think that's that weird i think that's just that's when you need the reverb the hearts of three different animals no it'd be more like the hearts of three different animals what are we making here and why are we in a cave together (laughs) another says our dog's absolute favorite treat is broccoli stems I don't know how this family figured this out, but you said our old family cat used to love strawberry yogurt on Kraft cheese singles. (laughs) Was that an accident or one of your one of you has a husky cross who loves carrots and sings a special song if the carrots particularly good. Good. One of you said we only feed ours pet food or otherwise there's explosive diarrhea. And then we got a note from Chris Henderson, the chief strategist at Y Station, who said any time I can include diarrhea in a top line report, I will. Thank you, Chris. One of you had a horse that ate oranges, beer and salt and vinegar chips. My man. (laughs) A reminder that this week's question of the week will award a... Full solar install to somebody, and we're asking you about sustainable, alternative, green energy. So obviously, there's going to be some some really interesting information to sift through. Plus, we're going to find out who's going to win that amazing prize from Kubi Energy. Thanks to the participation of the group at Y Station, and thank you to the hundreds of you that show up every single week to answer our question of the week. We totally appreciate it. Before we sign off, I wanted to give a shout out to Kelly t kelly t is a real talker an audience member that was one of the very first like kelly literally probably had to place their order the minute we listed our vinyl sticker pack on our website and as you can see from kelly's brilliantly and meticulously presented pickup the real talk rj hashtag being repped on the back window of that truck So happy to see it, Kelly. Thank you so very much. A reminder, if you go to our website, ryan under merch you'll be able to see links where you can pick up the launch edition of our ceramic diner mug you can pick up a real talk ryan jesperson t-shirt of course our 950 snapback cap by new era and brand new our vinyl sticker pack you get both the real talk rj hashtag plus our logo real talk ryan jesperson and every time you let us know how you're repping it we want to see it And there's going to be some cool incentives down the road. If I am out and about anywhere across this great land and we see a Real Talk RJ hashtag sticker, there will be prizes. Thanks so much for joining us today. We went into overtime on today's show. We're not going to apologize. There was just so much cool stuff to talk about tomorrow. The reality for farmers, it's a drought and it's going to impact crops, it's going to impact this country. We're going to find out how. Plus, my Jasper memories and so much more. Later on in the week, we'll check in at the Fairy Creek blockades and a round table on indigenous issues. That's coming up on Real Talk. We'll see you soon.